Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about uh, a deep dive into the meaning of the zodiac sign Cancer. And joining me today are astrologers Steph Koifman and Achutabhava Das. Uh, welcome, both of you. Thank you oh, so thanks much. For, thanks for having me. Yeah, so this is the fourth entry in my series on the signs of the zodiac, where I've been going through each of the signs and doing a full two-hour discussion where we really plumb the depths of the meaning and the symbolism of each of the signs. And uh, in this series, I've been getting astrologers that have placements in those signs. That way they can speak to them a little bit more directly from their own experience, a little bit or draw on some of their own experience with that archetype. Um, so both of you have some placements in Cancer, right? What are your stuff? Um, I have Sun and Midheaven. Sun and Midheaven, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And it's a day chart, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about you, Chu? Yeah, I've got the Sun and Mercury together in cancer sun and mercury all right that's also pretty good so we got two sun sign cancers um well so those are your that's your both of your resumes for this episode which i think is pretty strong um all right well let's jump right into it so the first thing is i wanted to show just a diagram for those watching the video version of this of the signs of the zodiac and how cancer is the fourth sign of the zodiac we've already gone through aries the first sign in the tropical zodiac that follows after the uh, spring equinox. Uh, then we have the second sign Taurus, then Gemini, and then finally Cancer. So in terms of the stats for Cancer, this is the symbol for Cancer. Uh, the animal totem for Cancer is a crab traditionally, and that's actually what the word Cancer means. It comes from a Latin term, which comes from a Greek term, which means the crab. So Cancer is a feminine or nocturnal sign because it's an even sign in terms of odd versus even. It's a water sign in terms of the elemental triplicities of earth, air, fire, and water. And it's also a cardinal sign because it falls um, right at the very beginning of the summer season. So the sign Cancer is ruled by the moon or it's said to be the domicile of the moon. It's the exaltation sign of the planet Jupiter. It's the sign of the detriment or antithesis of the planet Saturn because it's opposite to Saturn's ruling sign of Capricorn. And then it's also the sign of the fall or the depression of Mars because Cancer is opposite to the exaltation of Mars, which is the sign of Capricorn. So those are some of the basic stats. Um, I think the only other basic stat is from ancient astrology is in terms of the parts of the body, Cancer is usually said to rule the chest and the stomach. I think are the primary assignments, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. So those are some of the basics. Um, where where should we get started? Or what's your usual starting points or some of the first things that come to mind when you think of the sign cancer? Ooh, I mean, I guess we could start just by kind of going through modality, but sometimes I like to just kind of start by thinking about you know, the symbol of crabs and they kind of live in these tidal waters. They don't live in like the deep sea. They live where there's a lot of changeability. They live where they're kind of pushed and pulled by um, the water, which is actually being acted on by the moon, which is, you know, the, the planetary ruler of cancer. Um, and so I just kind of like this image of crabs being in this extremely um, changeable temperamental environment. And they have this hard outer shell that's meant to protect a vulnerable interior because, you know, they're constantly being preyed upon. Um, but, you know, symbolically, I like to think of it as um, 
these waters of human consciousness um, of, you know, just like the psychic and energetic input, the memories, the impressions, um, just being very kind of um, prone to being, I guess, receptive to that, to being tossed around on, on those waves. Yeah. I like that because cancer is the very first water sign. So it's actually our first introduction in terms of the signs of the zodiac to the element of water and some of the qualities, especially the emotional qualities and emotional depth that the element of water brings with it, which is true of all three of the water signs of cancer, Scorpio and Pisces. But this is really the first time that we encounter that. And so thinking of things like the the ocean and water and some of the things that live in it is is a really good starting point. It's a good starting point for life. I, I think about it that way too. Like there's so many associations, of course, with the moon and with um, you know, the womb. And and if you think going back to the Thema Mundi in ancient astrology, this uh kind of chart of the cosmos, this m- sort of um um mythical teaching tool that's used to help astrologers understand a lot of the basic or the like the fundamentals of uh of astrology and cancers on the ascendant you know the the sign of cancer is is rising in that thema mundi chart and um one of the parallels to that as as far as i've understood in ancient philosophy would be that you know at the summer solstice like well what's happening is the sun which is at its you know the arc of the sun's path or the ecliptic in the sky is sort of closest up to that pole star it's like most northern it's the sort of the highest the arc will get in the sky and then but then it's starting to descend like on the light half of the year the light is now starting to come down as it were the days are going to start getting shorter from that point on and the moon's rulership of that sign is interesting because in a lot of uh, ancient cosmology and philosophy, there's an association with the moon and this, this realm of incarnation that the soul comes into, like it takes a body, it comes into the mother's womb. And in a sense, you have almost like um, a visual metaphor of the, the spirit descending into matter, almost like the light is starting to come down into the sublunary kind of like the, the sphere of the moon, the earth where we all live. And and so I always thought that was kind of a cool visual metaphor that the light is descending and there's this idea of the spirit entering the the transient world of matter and taking a form or something like that. I love that a lot. And also just like, you know, I feel like you kind of always circle back with cancer to this idea of like vulnerable interior protected by an exterior. And I feel like that's just the form that all bodies take in one way or another, right? There's like the organs and then there's the skin or the skeleton or the exoskeleton. Um, and so it just, it just kind of seems like it's, it's kind of like the, the vessel, right. In a way, like that's kind of like the form that it takes, like no, almost no matter the species. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, so with the association of the rulership of the moon and just notions of being tied in with the body and the, and the notion of the physical incarnation of a person and what it feels like to be embodied in different ways um, which can have a number of different implications in terms of we saw some of that actually the very first sign where we saw some of that which was already in the sign of taurus which was an earth sign where the moon has her exaltation Um, but here in cancer we find the sign of the actual home of the moon 
and some of those themes become even more prominent and get tied in with like other notions also of, of what does it take in order to maintain the physical body and to have like health and vitality and nourishment, um, including simple things like like food and things like that, which is connected with the moon's rulership of the, the stomach or cancer's rulership of the stomach. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you have um, the uh, one of the phrases that was used to describe cancer in the ancient world was the gateway of man, like the gateway of mankind. Um, and then again, you have it on the ascendant of the Thema Mundi. And, um, and of course, the rulership of the moon, uh, it makes sense that so the moon is connected to the body and the, the, the world of coming to be and passing away like the world of matter and form and and shape but also that 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 world would be um that would sort of belong to the the nurturing would be associated with the nurturing qualities of the mother as though to be in this world there's there's something or to, to be in this world and to be healthy in this world you have to be nurtured you have to be cared for or you have to care for things and i always thought it was interesting that there's this parallel with cancer and that same quality of nurturing and memory you know as, as a father with a couple of kids now and watching you know my wife's a cancer rising but watching you know her mothering and then you know being a parent myself it's so much of it is just about remembering things like remembering what they need or their schedules or um so I've just been impressed by that and how the the you know if you think of the moon as this reflective light it's uh it reflecting the light of the sun and there's um in that reflective light there's a copy in a sense of an original and so you're you know there's it's like a parallel with the light quality of the moon and what a memory is which is sort of a copy of an original but if you think of the copy of the original the face of the moon also as a memory of the spirit or the soul that's in a body or that you know then you know, you're, you're remembering to care for that spirit soul is going to translate into your daily activities. Like when I'm remembering my kids, it's not just, well, I know that they need to get their diaper changed or something. It's, well, I'm, I'm remembering their soul and their needs as a being. And then, you know, sort of as a result, I have to do all these physical things to care for them. But the, the caring is really about caring for their soul. So there's this weird way in which the memory of the moon is both a physical thing, but it's also remembering their inner light, remembering that that spirit that lives within them or something like that. Yeah, that makes me think of something I've been talking about during the course of this series, which is the, the corrective function of each sign of the zodiac that follows after the sign that came before it. And one of the things that we saw in the sign of Gemini is uh, communication and information and being able to remember the facts about something or like report on something like a reporter would sort of impassionately, I think is something that Gemini is really good at. Um, but I think the corrective function that cancer brings is an emotional element to remembering something, not just in, in the facts of something, but how it made you feel. And that sometimes you can, you can completely, you know, forget the facts and the details behind something, but you can remember very vividly the emotional impact that it had on you. And I think um, that's one of the major things that cancer really brings to the zodiac that's new and fresh at this point in our journey, just four signs into it. 
Yeah. And actually, um, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're not really getting into like the, the dignity scheme, but it makes me think about how Jupiter is in detriment in Gemini, but exalted in Cancer. And so, you know, I know that the Jupiter and Cancer exaltation is often kind of conceived as, um, you know, everyone at the table gets fed, you know, like there's, there's enough for everyone. But, um, I think, you know, in terms of Cancer being a good memory keeper and a historian, you know, there's that kind of association with nostalgia, with like things of the past, with history, with memory. Um, and it just makes me think about how a body of knowledge is more complete when it's like well-documented, you know, there's like a, there's like a history, there's a track record. Um, and so I think that's also kind of part of, you know, Jupiter doing so well in Cancer is that we understand, we have like a more complete understanding when, you know, we we remember like what came before mm, yeah so notions of also like like ancestry and roots and origins in some ways through that connection with the moon um um also uh and and jupiter having its exaltation there i know rhetorius in like the seventh century he talks about jupiter having its exaltation in cancer um because of associations of of light and life and sort of vitality with that sign and the opposite being Mars having its exaltation in the coldest and the darkest sign that follows after the winter solstice, which is Capricorn, and notions of both Saturn and Mars being there and, and darkness and the absence of life or, or death being opposed to uh, what ca Cancer represents when the light is sort of at the height of its potency at the beginning of the summer. Yeah, it makes me think of. Um... James Hillman, um, you know, was uh, who's an archetypal psychologist, and um, you know, it, he was uh, kind of co you know colleagues with like Liz Green, for example. <clears throat> they were both studying under Jung and um, and so forth. And one of the things that he said, and he was his chart has been debated a little bit, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but I think he was a, he was one of his versions of his chart is a Cancer rising. Um, he has different versions of his chart. Yeah, there are, there's, I think there's like two different versions of like, the, that are like debated. Um, okay. Sounds like I wrote a an article Scorpio, for the Scorpio Rising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wrote a few article. I mean, I wrote an article a while ago for the Mountain Astrologer and I remember like talking to his son and some other people and it was like, there were these, there was some uh, debate about his birth time. But anyway, um, he said, you know, uh, real history is soul history. I'm a par paraphrasing, but um, to the point that you guys were just making, which was that he didn't like any kind of historical narration of something that didn't get into, you know, the the lived soulful experience of the people that were, you know, or the the time that was being reported on. So he was he was a big proponent of making sure that history is not a stream of facts and information because the the privileging of facts and information privileges uh, only a certain kind of experience and and so he was always you know wanting to dig in in that way and i he i think he might have had some placements in cancer in you know in planets if not by ascendant i can't remember but yeah it also kind of makes me think mm -hmm. about like you know just with the moon um you know the moon representing the body and you know how there's that whole kind of um that there's that book the body keeps the score um, which kind of launched this whole kind of um, like sort of subtopic in psychology where, you know, there's this kind of idea that trauma and physical, like, you know, emotional memories can be physically stored in the body. Um, and so that I feel like that's just kind of like another facet of 
lunar things, cancer things, having a long memory. And also um, what you were kind of talking about, Judah, like the um, like the soulful embodied history. Um, you know, I think about how the moon translates light between planets and its own in its own way, it's kind of keeping an oral tradition, right? Like it's kind of like telling a story as it kind of, um, you know, pings different things in the, in the sky. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Speaking of, of that, um, I, I think that's really interesting stuff because one of the things I was doing is I was like looking back on some of my notes on cancer is that the, the word crab is from the Indo-European root and I'm going to mispronounce it gerb, it looks like, but it's to scratch which also uh, a, a derivative of that would be to carve. And um, that I guess, and I didn't, I didn't, um, I don't know exactly where this comes from or if it's just a kind of a, an interesting association, but the idea of the, um, the crab's uh, pincers or whatever being associated with writing and um, uh, glyphs and with um, the scratching or carving of language. And uh, that was on, there's a, there's a website that I like to look up uh, things. <clears throat> it's called Constellation of Words. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that. It's kind of a cool website. Anyway, I was reviewing some notes that they have on the constellation of cancer. And they were making that association between the crab and writing, which I thought was, you know, as a Cancerian who went to school for writing. Of course, I have my Mercury and Sun in the third house, but I thought that was interesting. And maybe there's some um, way. I, I think you're definitely onto something with the idea of memory and storytelling and and keeping of memories and things like that that there's it's almost like an association with um scribes or writers or something like that and of course the moon rejoices uh you know in the third house too which is interesting yeah it kind of makes me think about how like the moon was um traditionally kind of associated with like messengers you know yeah because it's actually the fastest of the bodies of the astronomical bodies that we use in astrology in terms of uh, the traditional planets, even including some of the modern planets, which are much slower, like generational outer planets, but the moon cruises around the sign of the signs of the zodiac within a month, uh, just spending two to three days each sign, and it also um, regularly goes through its cycle of waxing and waning and increasing in light and getting brighter and brighter and brighter until it hits the full moon, and then uh, getting darker and darker until it hits the next new moon. Um, and with that, we get some of the associations also with cancer of sort of changeability and of notions of a little bit of like the fickleness of moods and how moods can be this passing or this changing thing that can change from day to day. And like one day you can be in a really good mood or the next day you can be in a really bad mood. And that some of that is a little bit environmental and um, transitory or, or can can pass and change. And I think there is probably also a connection with cancer being a cardinal sign. Um, and all of the cardinal signs have this tendency to initiate change and to be the initial push that sort of changes or pivots something and doesn't necessarily follow through or bring that to completion, but just acts as the starting point of something that's changeable or movable. Yeah. It kind of makes me think about how there's this sort of like prevailing stereotype of cancer being kind of a crybaby. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily that cancers are sadder than everyone. I think that, you know, it's it's more about having more comfort with emotions and with the full range of an emotional experience and just kind of a willingness to go through that complete cycle to experience like the full range of 
I guess what it means to be like, you know, a, a living being with feelings. Um, and so, you know, some of that can be sadness, but, um, I think maybe if you kind of exist in a cultural environment that sort of, um, prioritizes one set of emotional experiences over another, um, then, then it, then it does kind of feel, you know, like, I think that, um, people sometimes, um, people are like, oh no, it's cancer season. I'm going to be sad. And I think <laughs> that if you're someone who kind of has that natively, then you're kind of like, well, that's okay. I'm going to be sad. And then I'm going to feel a different way. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, if you're standing in the ocean and there's a wave coming, it's actually safer to just dive straight into the middle of that wave versus just trying to run away from it and getting knocked over by it. That's a, that's a great point. And as so I'm, I'm laughing just because of like the, just the familiarity of the stereotypes. I'm like, yep, I've heard those before. You know? <laughs> and, and some of them are kind of true sometimes too. Like, you know, I'm, I would say that I'm, I can be definitely can be a very moody, um, person, but I think that's probably why in my spiritual life, I was drawn to, um, bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is sometimes called the, the yoga of devotion or the emotional yoga or something like that. And at its core, um, like for example, there's a very famous bhakti text, um, in the English translation of its title is the, the nectar of devotion and the different, um, sections of the text are called different waves, like wave, this wave, that wave that, you know, they're, they're like divided into different types of waves. And, um, this is like, uh, you know, hundreds of years old and, um, one of the things that's that's pretty cancerian about bhakti yoga i would say or like sort of lunar about it is that um the real you know sometimes in yoga you'll hear people say things like you know you are not your emotions you know so get you know, have this like reflective distance so that you can experience them from a distance and not get sort of taken over by them and in bhakti yoga in many ways it's more about recognizing that they change and and sort of identifying them as different moods of the divine and so you're you're kind of learning to ride and incorporate all states of being, especially moods of experience as aspects of, of, of the divine nature or something like that. So it's a very like Cancerian form of yoga. And I was like, once I started understanding more about what this yoga was about compared to others, because I've been into yoga for a long time. My wife and I owned a yoga studio together and so forth. And in our home at first, by the way, which is very Cancerian. But we, you know, as I started understanding more about bhakti, I was like, oh, this is so, this fits my personality. Like my religious psychology and my birth chart is reflected in the kind of yoga that I'm doing, which is all about, you know, like what you were saying, just kind of like, oh, sadness is from this perspective, um, if you can appreciate and stay curious about any emotional state, it's, it's really beautiful. And I think that's something that I've noticed about some of my close Cancerian friends that I've had over the years too, or people with strong Cancerian placements is that there's this like, almost like an artist can appreciate all the different colors and, or the negative space in a painting is just as important as something else that Cancerians are often just really appreciative of the different fluctuations. You know, it's like a, a mood ring. Oh, look at this beautiful, how it's changing and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, it, it, I think another kind of key word we can kind of use is maybe that it's rhythmic, you know, because the moon, the moon has many faces kind of, as you're saying, and there's this kind of speed and just sort of changeability, but there's also a constancy and a predictability to its motions. Um, and so 
it's kind of like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's the fastest moving planet and it's always changing. But then if you kind of um, zoom out a little bit, there's this kind of like stillness to the way that mm. it's always kind of orbiting in the same predictable speed and motion. Um, you know, it kind of makes me think about like the repetitive motions of caretaking, the rhythms of feeding mm. someone like a child, you know, it's like, okay, well, if you have a baby, then you're going to have to feed that baby every two hours. Oh yeah. Yeah. The rhythms that's so, you know, and you know, what goes along with that. That just brought to my mind stuff is, um, you know, the sacred, well, first of all, one of the things that's interesting about bhakti to borrow some more helpful, like metaphors from that practice is that, um, it's well in a lot of bhakti in India is, is there's different, like you could be, have a, you could be a bhakta and be a, a follower of Shiva or like any number of, um, gods or goddesses or whatever. In Krishna Bhakti, which is the path that I've, I follow, is Krishna and Radha is kind of like this divine dyad. <clears throat> but Krishna is, uh, the, the planet associated with Krishna is the moon. So it's interesting that this figure in Bhakti is also associated with the moon. That's one thing. And then the other thing that I thought of when you were just saying that stuff is um, that the one of the main practices, not just in Bhakti yoga, but in many different forms of yoga in India is um, mantra meditation. And, um, you know, a mala is going to be used and you practice japa, use a mala and the number of beads on a mala is 108, which is a number, sacred number associated with the moon as well, which is, you know, just interesting. And there's, I've heard a lot of different explanations as to why 108 is associated with the moon, but, um, yeah, there's, and I don't know like which one is necessarily a part of the original rationale, you know, um, but What's so interesting about that idea of the rhythm is that, for example, um, the at the heart of most mantra meditation practices in uh, like in India is the idea of remembrance again. So memory that you're well, you're remembering God, or if you're or you're remembering your your you know your deity if it's Krishna, or you're remembering um, that you're a spirit soul or whatever it is because we tend to forget the things that really matter, you know, that we, you know, what, what, and that we could translate that into anything it doesn't necessarily have to be like religious, but that because we tend to forget things, um, that are of eternal value that we practice this recitation of mantras. And it's interesting that we're doing so in a big circular set of beads, right? Oh, yeah, a, yeah, you know, yeah. big circular set of beads that whose number was associated with the moon. And, even if it like in the Buddhist practice, like we used I used to go to this Buddhist um, temple that was near where we lived in, in Potomac, Maryland. And we'd go out there and there would be people, you know, circumambulating um, like a shrine with beads as well, um, like a mindful walking in a circle. And, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh would do that as well. And so I think there's this there's this connection between whether it's remembrance of, of a child and it's like feeding schedule or it's even like some you know exotic metaphysical uh spiritual practice like walking in a circle around a shrine with your circular beads and and stuff like that yeah one, one of the things this is making me think of also um is one of you mentioned capricorn the opposition between cancer and capricorn it makes me think of the essential dignity system and with cancer there's a embracing of emotion and sometimes like a giving into emotion and sentimentality whereas in capricorn we have more of a coldness and sort of a rejection of that um and a focus maybe on 
you know, the cold hard facts or the objectiveness of time or, or other things like that, the limitations of things. And I think that's why um, you have that that dignity structure where the moon is said to have its domicile in Cancer, where it embraces that fully, but might um, in Capricorn and the sign opposite to itself uh, subvert that expectation in some way, and that it's sort of a rejection or an attempt to control one's emotions, which might be hard or might be a little unsettling for uh, the moon initially at first, or you know the opposite. If you put Saturn in Cancer, which is the sign of its detriment, um, Saturn, which is usually so controlled of a planet, um, has to sort of let go and like give in to emotionality, and that can be sort of difficult uh, combination for that planet. Yeah, I actually, I I feel like that might just be something that's kind of common amongst the two luminaries, both kind of opposing Saturn in the dignity scheme. Um, you know, the Moon and Sun both have to do with subjectivity in a way. And then like Saturn has to do with objectivity and kind mm -hmm. of like a removal from your kind of like, you know, your own kind of personal lens from where you're sitting. Um, and I think that's kind of where maybe one of the other stereotypes comes in that uh, cancers take things personally. Uh, I think maybe you could say Leo's do too, and it's a little different, but sort of similar. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one of the things connected with that is that I was thinking about recently is how um, you know part of the rationale for the domicile assignment scheme is putting the sun at 15 degrees of Leo because that's the very height, the very middle of the summer season in the northern hemisphere where the western, the tropical zodiac originated, where that scheme originated. And the moon is assigned to uh, Cancer just after the summer solstice. And one of the things that's interesting in the in the summertime is that while the, the days can sometimes get oppressively hot when the sun is out um, and is just like beating down on you, at night time in the middle of the summer, the summer, the, the weather can be actually very warm and very um, you know, enjoyable. It's like you go outside and do stuff at night during the summer because that's when it cools down enough that you have this sort of reassuring or sort of helpful warmth versus or helpful warmth at night um, during the darkness when everything is dark out versus the opposite of that is like the middle of winter during Capricorn season where at nighttime, that's when the cold gets the most extreme and the cold suddenly becomes the thing that is the most oppressive and the most sort of harmful to life because it's lacking in temperateness. Um, and there's something about that notion of a, a helpful or a supportive warmth, like nighttime warmth, that I think is very key to understanding Cancer's archetype as well. Yeah, that's a great point. <clears throat> I was thinking about that just the other night because we were going to have, you know, my kids were like, oh, can we have a bonfire in the fire pit? And I was like, well, you know, it's really hot, you know, and then I, um, I realized, well, actually, it's going to get down to like 70 by, you know, the time it's dark. And I, I thought, well, yeah, once it's dark, it'll actually be really nice out for a fire. And so we did that. So I was, I was just thinking about that. It's so, so nice and temperate out once it gets a little um, darker. Yeah, so there, there's something there about both of those, both um, Cancer and Capricorn being nocturnal signs or, or feminine signs or whatever you want to call it, but having that difference between a sort of temperateness and a supportive warmth versus an excessively cold one, which 
um, you know, harms life in some way or um, is sort of the absence of it in some sense. So I think that might be really key as we talk about and think about some of these things as well. There's a, um, there's a parallel that comes to my mind, which, um, I had a while ago, um, this, you, did you guys ever read the Narnia Chronicles? Yeah. Like the yeah. line. That we, okay. Right. So the book, um, the silver chair, um, in that series, I had this, uh, CS Lewis scholar from Oxford come and, uh, speak on my YouTube channel one time. And he was, uh, he, his name's Michael Ward. And he wrote this book called, um, planet narnia and it's uh i think the subtitle is like this the seven planets or the seven heavens in the imagination of c.s lewis and his whole thesis is that people were looking for some kind of hidden you know allegorical key to the narnia chronicles like it seems like there's allegories built into them but no one could really identify what they were and his thesis was that because lewis was a huge fan of um he was a you know he was a medievalist in terms of his like literary scholarly background and he was really interested in um the seven planets in um and in this kind of renaissance picture of the the cosmos which he felt like was more a more enlightened view than um the, the sort of modern model which was devoid of any kind of divinity in the cosmos so he was interested in the planets and the thesis of his book was that he imbued each one of the seven narnia chronicles with the symbolism of one of the planets and his thesis for any any outlines it in his book and it's a really fun like interesting presentation especially if you've read the books as as a kid and um uh the silver chair according to his thesis was the the moon's book you know for obvious reasons the silver chair being a, a reference to the moon itself as the metal associated with the moon but in that story he the the interesting structure of the story which he argued was lunar and has a real parallel to what we're saying about the dichotomy between like sun and uh, sun and saturn or moon and saturn the beginning of the story first of all it's the it's the the story is with a heroine rather than a a, a boy and it, it's jill is her name and uh she starts off the story in aslan's country talking to aslan the lion um, which is this parallel for almost like a, a spiritual or almost like a platonic realm, some kind of perfect heavenly place. And she's talking to Aslan and Aslan's like, you're going to go down into Narnia to have this adventure, um, you know, but the air is like thicker down there and and like denser uh, than it is up here. And I'm going to give you these instructions to successfully complete this mission, um, but uh, you're going to be prone to forgetting the instructions. Uh, so that he gives, she gives, she, he, he gives her like mantras to repeat. And, um, and he says, you know, you have to keep repeating them down there because you're going to forget because it's so pleasant and so lovely, but also the air is thicker and you'll be, you'll be prone to forgetting or almost like falling asleep. And so you have to like keep repeating these instructions to remember the steps to the adventure to get through it. And so she goes down and every step of the way, when there's a critical moment where <clears throat> one of the signs that Aslan gives her to remember the next step in the adventure comes across, she's forgetting. Um, and then, you know, I won't give it away in case you haven't read it, but it's this, this epic adventure where she's constantly having to remember and, and try to stay objective and in remembering the mission because there's this tendency because everything is so pleasant in the air to like fall asleep um and that that plays a huge role in this mission um which goes on and on and eventually takes her uh down into like caves down below the earth and the first thing she sees when she comes out of the cave having remembered the final instructions and so forth the first thing she sees is the moon 
It's really interesting. But the the parallel that I'm seeing in this story, and you know, Michael Ward lays out all of the lunar symbolism so nicely, is that there's this dichotomy throughout the whole story between um, this healthy form of remembering, like which we've been talking about, and also needing to stay ob- like objective because uh, the potential in this sort of sublunary Narnian sphere is that the air is so dense and lovely that you'll fall asleep and like potentially forget something that matters that's this bigger overarching objective thing that strikes me as a really maybe like slightly more positive way of looking at what saturn also provides in in contrast to say the moon um or capricorn versus cancer as someone who is born with uh, i have the sun i have the moon in cap so i've got a, a full moon with sun and cancer moon and cap and i think it kind of nicely describes it it's like yeah the the if you don't have some emotional sense of investment um you know you're you're not going to really enjoy life you're going to be detached and sort of devoid of emotion or something but if you get too invested and too you can fall asleep because of the lovely nocturnal breeze or whatever and then you can kind of forget some of the things that are really important and and maybe big picture um you, you that you'd lose track of yeah and it kind of makes me think about how like you know um in like stable or more peaceful conditions there's this kind of like urgency from maybe older generations who have experienced war or famine or hardship to kind of keep that historical memory alive so that, you know, people don't get complacent and like repeat, um, repeat history in a harmful way. Mm, Yeah. That's a good point. The passing on of like ancestral or, or family or even like country sort of heritage in in some way. And and that idea of, of tradition and heritage and passing things along. It reminds me of <clears throat> what James Hillman said in um, his really famous book, The Soul's Code. He's like, I'm I'm a big Hillman geek, so um, excuse me for referencing him every two minutes. But he um, he well, he wrote in many different places. He would also say that um, that in in life, in the way that we live, um, if we're living a soulful life, that one of the odd things is that we're always remembering death. Uh, we're remembering people who have lived and already died or we're remembering the fact that we will die someday and that that remembrance of death or that sort of awareness of it is really clo- like he identified it as something that was is is close or um close in the in the awareness of people who live like really soulful lives like artists or you know philosophers or you know like that was sort of his thesis was that like if you you have to keep the memory of death your or the the sense that you will die like sort of close close by so that um you know your the, the presence is like really closely connected to that like being present in the moment and making soulful choices it ha- it, you have to have death like in closeness to you mm, that's a good point and that's i mean that's kind of like an internal characteristic of all living beings is the notion of like self-preservation right and, and like what what it takes to preserve oneself which sort of, as well as to preserve others and those that are important to you, which I think takes us back a little bit to something you said, Steph, with the um, connection and a little bit of the difference between Cancer and Leo, where for Cancer, sometimes um, there can be a focus on taking care of others and taking care of those around you and those that are important to you or that you have some kind of uh, emotional connection with, whereas part of the corrective function, which we goes once we go to Leo is more of an 
uh, focus on taking care of yourself and like putting yourself first and doing what's most important to you. Um, but in in doing that, maybe that gives us some more insight into cancer as well and where sometimes cancer has a tendency, um, especially as, as a water sign and as a nocturnal sign to uh, make way for others and not just take care of others, but to um, center or adapt to others in some way, which is one of the characteristics of water is that it's one of the most adaptable signs in terms of water taking on the shape of whatever is around it rather than the water itself like you know other elements sometimes force their own shape onto others but water is the one where it'll just like adapt to its its surroundings yeah i think you know another way you can kind of understand like the the cancer to the leo progression is that it's you know, cancer, I think it is about focusing on the interiority of your experience. And Leo is very much about the exteriority. And so I kind of think about how like, you know, it's the difference between receiving an impression and expressing. So it's like, you know, the moon takes in light, the sun emits it. Um, and so I think it's, you know, maybe in Gemini, you were going out there and kind of just like, um, just like sort of just um, getting like, having conversations, having little bits of inspiration come to you. And then I, I almost think about like the little mermaid in her cove. She gathered all these things, right? And now she's inside of her cave being like, Ooh, what does this thing do? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a brush for my hair. You know, you're just kind of inside your own little world. Um, I think there's a lot of imagination that um, actually gets um, supported by this too. I think that's like kind of an underrated aspect of cancer is just how imaginative and creative it is too. Um, but then in Leo, you're kind of like, okay, well, how do I express this? How do I just put it out there? Um, right. Maybe, maybe, maybe Virgo it? then refines it and it's like, okay, well maybe, maybe you can edit this down a little bit. Right. So you, so you bring up imagination, which is a really good keyword for cancer. And that also connects to another one, which is dreams and the, the necessary and like healing or restorative, necessity of the dream world as being another sort of lunar and cancerian place that we access at this point in the zodiac where you have to go into the dream state each night both in order to like rest your body but also in order to recharge your brain and that there's something about that that's crucial to the maintaining of life yeah and it um you know i think that there's also like Another another thing that I feel like doesn't get talked enough about with cancer is just like the strange the strangeness of cancer. Um, mm. And I think it kind of goes to what you're saying, like the um, I think what you were saying, Achuta, before about how like you're receiving a copy, and um, it makes me think about how sometimes when you're looking at things in the night, like shadows can take on strange form, um, and it's sort of about how like dreams themselves are kind of surreal and strange and ineffable in a way. Um, you know, I, I actually, like, I was thinking, okay, like David Lynch is like a famous surrealist, right? He has the moon right on the midheaven. And then I was like, Hmm, I wonder, I wonder what Salvador Dali has. He's a, actually a cancer rising with a moon right on the midheaven. So I think that there's something to that about like, just like the kind of, um, surreal quality of the, the moon and, um, the imagination and just like the, um, the parsing of the subjective experience you know it comes to you in these kinds of strange visions that are a little strange you know like it's 
it's definitely like, you know, cancer is the one who's going to go and like wake up and tell all their friends about the dream they just had. And it's like, sometimes people don't care, but I don't know. I think it's interesting. Well, and what's funny about that is it's incredibly hard to express to another individual the subjective impact that a dream had on you. Yeah. Sometimes, no matter how hard you try, you can never convey the emotional intensity or impact that that had on you with words because you're trying to convey something that was emotional and internal through something that's like logical and analytical, which is like putting it into words. And there's something that's not transferable about those two things. There's a an, a state in alchemy that um, was like a, was called the silvering stage. You know, you you think about alchemy in terms of um, like a site. Let's consider it like a psycholog- psychological metaphors, <clears throat> which may or may not have been in, intended by ancient alchemists. But you imagine that these different states are um, that they talked about in, in alchemy can be transferred, like Jung did, into like the individuation process or the you know psychological journey of life. And um, the silvering stage, which again would be uh, the metal of the moon, it was in co- also considered uh, kind of a lunar stage of um, refinement of consciousness, has to do with being able to identify within the world of experience and forms the reflection of s- something eternal. Um, and I think it's v- like dreams for many people are like almost like a gateway into starting to see or experience life as symbolic or archetypal in nature. I mean, if I think about the precursor to getting into astrology in my life early on, probably one of the earliest things would be like I was fascinated by dreams. <clears throat> I had a dream journal and stuff like that. Um, but if as we're going around the world and I, I reflect often on like what is astrology accomplishing for people in their lives psychologically or spiritually or whatever and every day as we're you say you take in like you know a couple of your astrologer your favorite astrologers on youtube or instagram or wherever you follow them and they're they're reflecting on the transits every month or week or whatever and it's that it's that reflection it's that act of reflecting upon something that is that is happening um we're looking at uh say um you know a mars pluto transit we just had like last week or whatever and um well, my daughter over the weekend uh burnt her finger pretty bad and i was just able to because of astrology i was able to silver that moment for, to use the to borrow the alchemical language and psychologize it like i was able to see reflected in the burn on her finger her actual flesh and the moment of caring for her and everything this planetary combination that i'd been talking about and anticipating and reflecting upon for like a week and for the alchemist, that would mean that there's something of our experience that we're now we're now able to see, not only in terms of its literal, physical, or like material manifestation, but it allows us to reflect upon it as something other, something, something else. And um, in that way, the world starts to be like this very magical lunar medium through which we're experiencing things. And I think that. For a lot of people, I think that's one of the reasons that astrology keeps us coming back for more is that it just makes your experiences very dreamlike. It makes your life very magical and not that you always have to come to an interpretive meaning of it all. Like, I don't know why she burned her finger exactly, you know, or or whatever. But there was this for me as as a parent, like there was the literal level of concern. And then there was this very like, wow, there it is. There's the planet, you know. And so to me that all of that, the whole act of like 
reflecting on the daily movements of the planets um, feels like this very lunar sort of alchemical project. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, beyond just also being kind of just like a gateway to dreams, I think that, um, you know, the moon, you know, cancer, the moon is also very psychic and intuitive. And so it's not just like literally being able to kind of parse these symbols and these kinds of dream states, but also, you know, sometimes being very kind of attuned to something beyond just like your own, I guess, your own process, your own experience. Um, and yeah, I mean, like there was like a brief time a couple of years ago when I was, I had a devotional practice to the moon and it was for a completely different reason. But one of the kind of unintended side effects is that I started having these like strangely psychic dreams and like in the weirdest ways, just like super random, but like, I, I can't even just explain like, like, you know, I had a dream and then like something happened like that same day. Um, or I had a dream about like someone doing a magic trick and like he had a specific name in the dream. And then I woke up and I Googled and there was a YouTube magician who was doing the same magic trick in a video that I saw in my dream. And I was just like, what, what is going on? You know? <laughs> yeah. That makes me think of, um, you know, how astrologers tend to associate the planet Saturn with time and Saturn having one of its domiciles in Capricorn opposite to cancer. And maybe part of the connection there, the contrast and the tension between the two is that when you go into the dream state, you're tapping into a realm that is sort of timeless and some part of the universe that's like timeless in some sense, which in the one hand can connect you with the past and allow you to re-experience old memories or old connections with people that might be gone from the past as if you were experiencing that in the present. But on the other hand, sometimes maybe that gets projected into the future and you get that sense of having like a prophetic dream. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. <clears throat> and also yeah. people people love to talk about how cancer is just, just they just know. They just know things, you know. Um Yeah, know. what like what is that? Like intuition? What do we call that? Um cuz there's there's like different types of intuition. There's like a there's like a natural almost like physical intuition or emotional intuition, kind of like emotional intelligence of like anticipating the needs of another person, but also maybe being able to anticipate something else that's almost like a sixth sense in some some ways. But that's almost I don't know if that's like connected or if that's separate from like what we'd classify as like like a psychic connection or something. Yeah, I think for me it kind of goes back to that like body level of awareness, you know, with the moon having to do with the body. And um I don't know if it's a gut instinct thing because I guess that I would almost associate more with Virgo, you know, Mercury and like the intestines. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just being attuned to the subtle and sensitive. Maybe sensitivity is the right term to use here. Mm -hmm. The cancers, um, you know, as well as Scorpio and Pisces, as water signs are more sensitive in some ways to all the compared to the other signs. And therefore, maybe that sensitivity allows them to pick up on things that others might overlook. And maybe even sensitivities to clues or things that are happening that are not just you know <clears throat> sort of like analytical things of, of like, like something they've seen with their eyes, but maybe there's other ways that they can be sensitive to things. I think about time too, like Plato's um, statement, famous statement: "Time is the moving image of eternity." That's like a well, it's a translation of of what he wrote, and um, <clears throat> I think of like the moon 
the, the, so let's just sort of like lunar consciousness in general, if you want to put it that way, and its experience of time is very cyclical. Um, so in insofar as time and experience are moving in these familiar like rhythms and circles that, um, you know, something that looks or feels prophetic is is almost like tapping into a uh, this very instinctual knowledge of cycles and um and uh, time being experienced as different kinds of circles interacting with one another i had a friend when i lived in dc who wrote a book I'm trying to remember the name of it i think it was called time loops or something like that but anyway he was um he was really interested in the idea that there are like time circles and um I always found that to be a really Cancerian idea, you know, um, and I have to look at his chart. I bet you he's probably got some cancer planets too, but anyway, maybe that there's something about time being experienced as, as loops and circles that, um, gives cancer some kind of weird intuition about it. Yeah. So it's not like you're, it's not necessarily that you're receiving new information. It's almost like a familiarity. Yeah. I think, I mean, when I think it was like Jung who talked about the difference between intuition and instinct as almost like as two different forms of psychic receptivity. Um, and in this sense, I think it would fall into the way that he described instinct, which is like this familiarity with rhythms and, and cycles. I think I'm pretty sure that's how he described it as well. Um, so going back, one of the things I always meant to do with this series is to give like positive keyword and then the other side of the same coin so one of the things that can be a good thing is is being sensitive and therefore being like sensitive to the needs of others caring about you know the other people in the room and what their feeling are or what sort of feelings they're giving off and adapting to that um, but the other side of that coin sometimes can maybe be being overly sensitive or uh, impressionistic yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think cancer is sensitive in like every sense of the word, you know, sensitive to, um, you know, just kind of like these intuitive hits, sensitive to other people's feelings and just got also kind of sensitive to perceived rejection. And, um, you know, I think it kind of goes back to how some of us might be born more intuitive than others. We all have an intuition, but, um, you know, it, it also takes some time to kind of develop your intuitive muscle and be able to understand the difference between what's a genuine sense and what is just a projection. Because I think, you know, if we're kind of going to, um, we're going to kind of do a diss track on cancer. I think cancers are good at hurting their own feelings sometimes. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Being yeah. too much, too much in one's feelings, too much in one's feels. Or just, um, just kind of, um, yeah, just kind of perceiving the, the energy of someone else as being it's like you know kind of taking it personally or just um creating like a whole situation in your head or having a conversation in your head with someone that like isn't really happening <laughs> yeah that's funny you mentioned that my my wife is an herbalist and um she's you know around a lot of herbalists and i've heard i heard this one herbalist who knew something about astrology giving a talk about herbs and the association associations with cancer and i don't remember what the herbs were but one thing he said about cancer that i'll never forget was he was like you know, a lot of what you think you're perceiving in other people, what they're feeling or, or thinking, you know, you'll be right on, but there's like a, at least 30 to 40% where you're, you're actually making it up in your head. And then there's another 
level at which you think that other people can know and see and feel exactly what you're feeling and thinking like you're so transparent but actually you know half the time people have no idea what you're feeling or thinking yeah and like you have to always be aware of that like you know that that gray spot where no people can't see what you're thinking and no you don't know what other people are thinking you know (laughs) right I like that. And and maybe part of that or the part where cancer can be off is that sometimes it can be drawing on p- past hurts or like past traumas and letting that sometimes inform its perception of like what people are, are doing to them in the present. And sometimes that can like throw things off um, and can lead to a tendency to maybe retreat or to want to like protect oneself. Um, but what you're just saying, it also makes me think of, cause it's like Scorpio also has that same tendency, but there it gets amped up into like full blown, sometimes like paranoia of, you know, having a, a wall that has like a, you know, 10 different pieces of paper with like strings attached to it of the, uh, you know, that meme of people just like, you know, coming up with full blown like scenarios in their head. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 So yeah, but that's a really important point. I don't is there are there other pieces of that that we can we can like extract from that sort of line of thought? Yeah, I mean, I think I think with sensitivity also comes irritability. Um, you know, it's kind of going to that moodiness of just being like, you know, like literally like everything just feels louder, like more like the volume is kind of turned up on like a, just a lot of sensations and experiences. Um, and so that irritability and that sensitivity are kind of two sides of the same coin, I think. Um, and it also just makes me think about like, you know, the crustacean metaphor of a clam that gets irritated by a grain of sand, but then it makes a pearl around it. Um, and then it's like, what is one of our common, what, you know, in our vernacular, what's one of those common phrases we say pearls of wisdom, which is Jupiter, I think. Um, Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. That makes me think of, um, one famous cancer sun sign, which is um, Frida Kahlo, and she had Leo rising with the sun in cancer in the 12th house conjunct Neptune and widely conjunct Jupiter, but also opposite to a kind of tight Mars-Uranus conjunction in Capricorn in her sixth house, and how um, you using that clam analogy made me think of that just because she went through and suffered some pretty serious like hardship and tragedy in her life, especially in terms of like injuries and and struggles with her health. Uh, but then out of that, she was able to draw on and, and have tremendous like creative potential in order to create really beautiful works of art. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example. Yeah. So um, all right. So that's a good line of thought. I like that. Um, sometimes I compare the signs to other signs of either the same modality or the same triplicity. And we started comparing a little bit to the same triplicity with Cancer and Scorpio. Are there other things that come to mind for each of you that are similarities but differences when it comes to comparing Cancer and Scorpio? I think Cancer is more defensive and Scorpio is a little bit more um, offensive. Like it'll 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 attack whereas Cancer will kind of retreat unless like really kind of pushed into a corner, you know, or like, you know, defending its young or defending people it cares about. Right. So cancer has a tendency to protect, whereas Scorpio's tendency is to protect by going on the offensive first. If it, if it like sees a threat. I feel like there's, uh, when I was in DC, I did uh, quite a 
a, a few readings for people who worked in the government, obviously, right? In, you know, in the in the DC area, and I worked with a lot of people who were in the military, cybersecurity, and the Defense Department who were Scorpios or had really strong Scorpio placements. So I feel like there's a this real protectiveness to both signs as well, though. Um, that it's it's different. I, I, I'm having a hard time. It's like, yeah, there's it's like a different quality of defensiveness and i'm trying to figure out how to describe it but i'm struggling mm. Mm. scorpio is like spying on the enemy and cancer is building a bunker to keep everyone safe <laughs> that's nice yeah that's perfect yeah yeah i like that and then um the other water sign of course is pisces um and i'm trying to think of some other contrasts in terms of similarities between cancer and pisces i mean they can both do a pretty good job of just like vibing and just vibing out with each other. And I think that can be one of the similarities between cancer and Pisces as, as water signs. One of my jokes is that cancers are basically just Pisces with better boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> better I'm boundaries, joking. I'm, I'm joking, but yeah, I think, um, I think maybe the key difference with cancer and Pisces is that Pisces is truly welcoming to all, you know what I mean? Like it's like love without boundaries and, Cancer directs its love to an inner circle. You know, it's like that idea of like there are people on the inside and people on the outside. Well, that's a good point. Um, yeah. It's immediate circle, inner circle. Yeah. There's a little bit and of a click of clannishness to cancer. Definitely. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes me think of, um, have you heard of that Danish word, huga? It's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. And it's, it's sort of like... Um, it's part of like the Danish mentality, just like um, this idea of like closeness and coziness and togetherness and like, um, you know, spending Friday night around a fire, um, drinking hot cocoa with like a few of like your favorite people. Speaking um, my language, that sounds good. <laughs> yes. But then there's also, you know, if you kind of like start reading about it, um, people have written these op-eds about how there's kind of a dark side to Hoga too, because um Sometimes like that concept gets co-opted by people like on the far right who want to keep out like the unfamiliar people, like oh, the foreigners, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, it's like a nationalistic, it can, it can be kind of co-opted in these kinds of, you know, um, harmful or just kind of violent ways. That's really interesting Steph, because as someone who grew up in Minnesota, which I mm. feel like, I feel like Minnesota is like gotta have some cancer in its, in its history. Um, but it like Minnesota is described as like, there's this funny saying that people will, will give you, which is like, you can ask directions to get somewhere from absolutely anyone. And they will be the kindest, sweetest person you've ever met, help you get directions. They just won't give you directions to their house. <laughs> and I feel like, like Minnesota is like that where it's, it's like this very, it's very parochial, you know, and um, it's hard to develop like tight knit bonds because they're already really long-standing and formed in the midwest i don't think maybe it's just the midwest in general but like um but it's it's very warm and and inviting but um can be also like really clannish and it's interesting that like it, you know we're like a blue state in minnesota but if you go outside of the metro area it's like it's completely red so it's this very weird um breakdown of the like the 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 way that people vote in, in uh in minnesota in that regard too so it strikes me as sort of um sort of like that yeah yeah that's, i actually lived in minnesota for four years when i was a kid that was probably like the only time i really like lived outside of the east coast um and 
I don't know where you grew up. I, I guess I was living in like a suburb of Minneapolis and um, I just like my memory of that time is just like, you know, having tons of friends who are neighborhood kids. Um, and then like moving to the East coast, I actually had like the opposite experience where like people were way more to themselves. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So maybe we're picking up on a theme there that goes back to the notion of it's like sentimentality, but there's another term, but just, um, cancer going back to, and, and really having a tendency to cling to bonds and the things that connected it through some sort of like ancestral lineage, lineage. And that being like a really important uh, thing to it, uh, to cancer, to find some sort of like past connection and then to gravitate towards that which seems similar or that which is the same in some way that it perceives as the same or that it perceives as having some sort of um, affinity with. That's really, that really triggered like a, a spark in my mind when you said that, Chris, because I just started thinking about the third house, which we maybe haven't talked about a whole lot yet, but like that's the, the, the place, the third house was called the joy of the moon, um, in case people don't know. And, um, so we, you know, in modern astrology, we might think of like the third, a lot of people think of the third house in relation to like Gemini or Mercury in ancient astrology. Like there's, there's, uh, a, a, consideration of the moon in that house actually it's kind of it's kind of different and i think there's some interesting similarities actually too between the moon and mercury and so forth but one of the things that's really interesting about that people will say well like what does the moon have to do with the third house and if you think about the third house as like this place that's sort of adjoining the fourth and let's say the fourth is like the roots it's home it's land it's you know, it's your living room. It's your, it's everything that's like that, that deep familiar, um, home place. But then the third place that's adjoining it, um, there's almost this idea of like everything that circumambulates around the roots, like everything that's sort of joined to the roots in close proximity to it, like your neighbors, or like if you grow up with siblings, you're all a part of the same roots, but you all kind of disperse outward around the roots, you know, like and I'm imagining in the ancient world, you know, like my sister lives in North Carolina. I live in, uh, you know, Minnesota. But, but in the, it, you know, probably in the ancient world, if you're thinking about how your siblings disperse outward from the home, you're probably all still relatively close. Um, you know, like, I don't know, my family in Michigan, my, my grandpa's generation, like all of the siblings were all within like, you know, maybe 50 minutes of each other. Like they were all relatively close. So you're thinking of the third house as everything that kind of, adheres to like the third house is sort of adhering to the fourth it sort of adheres to or circumambulates around um the roots and there's something really lunar about that if i if i think about it in that way you know yeah and then it's also you know like the associate the association of the third house with one's neighborhood and like like the surrounding area so it's like all of your habitual stomping ground you know it's like the walk to the work it's like the walk to the subway it's um your favorite coffee shop um, also, um, you know, the third house being associated with like daily ritual and praxis. Yeah. And so yeah. again, you're kind of going back to repetitive motion and devotion, that, that mm -hmm. quality of like, yeah, yeah, that's great. One of the, um, keywords I put out a poll, just asking people what keywords they associate with cancer on Twitter. And one of them that people mentioned was, uh, soft and also shy. And I thought those are really interesting keywords, um, because in the in the Avanajatic in the early Indian tradition, instead of 
assigning the the odd and the even signs to gender, saying masculine or feminine, or instead of saying diurnal and nocturnal, they said that the um, odd signs were hard and the even signs were soft. And that's kind of an interesting distinction here when it comes to cancer, because cancer as a nocturnal sign and a water sign does have this like soft quality to it. Um, that can be applied on on many different levels of the idea of of what is soft in your life and um, the way that, that that comes off as opposed to those things in your life that are kind of abrasive in some way. Yeah, that's a good point. It goes back to that visual um, metaphor I think Steph said earlier, which was, or I can't remember who said it now, but <clears throat> if you think about the nocturnal space um, and the quality of light, um, you're thinking about a kind of like when the moon's out, oftentimes, depending on how bright it is, you're getting a mixture of starlight and moonlight. So there's this feeling of the, of the sky being like, um, a village of lights or a community or a city or, a um, like, a. It's many though. It's it's many, and the light quality is very much more. There's it's much more fluidity between things. Like the difference between the tree and the rock is more fluid in the daytime. It's like that tree, that rock. Um, so there's something about that nocturnal space where everything sort of swims together, and I think that's probably where some of the soft, the idea of the softness comes from. It's interesting to note that the moon would also be related with like the voters or the city or the village or things that have to do with like the something, something more of a collection or something like that. Anyway, I'm, I'm starting to go off, but yeah, the softness comes to mind with the nocturnal light quality. I love, I love this, that metaphor of the village of lights is so good. Yeah. I like the, that notion of softness, because you're right. In the day, if you like go out at noon and stand outside, the sun, when it's hitting you, has this really abrasive, intense quality. Versus if you go out at night during a full moon and the moon is in the middle of the sky, you're still getting that that light, which is important because that's kind of like the just like the center of the solar system and light. It plays such an important role for life in general, and all plants, you know, grow as a result of life. But at night, it is this softer light that's more um, supportive while still providing some light in a sort of indirect way. Yep. All right. So um, other keywords, so I'm pulling up other things. Is shy like a good keyword, would you say, for cancer as a tendency? I mean, I feel like I've that might be like a first decan of cancer thing, but I know we're not really going to get into the weeds of that. Um, I guess it depends sometimes. Yeah, I feel like it goes back to that solar lunar distinction we were just talking about and that we brought up earlier as well, which is if you think about Leo and the sun being the ruler of Leo and this idea that we are, as an individual, I'm select, I'm unique. I How do I stand out? How do I you know carve out my role or my legacy or my... How do I become masterful at something or maybe even famous or whatever? It's it the, the idea of standing alone, standing apart. It's very like solar, like the one object in the sky that creates all these very clear distinctions between things. And I think 
the the where you think of the moon and you think of your life as an ecology right you're, I'm, my life is about an environment that i'm just one part of it's my family or it's my friends or it's my community or it's my relationships like the moon is one of the signifiers potentially of marriage or it could be a symbol for like home or land or something like that but it i i think the reason that shyness gets tucked in there is be, again because of that that light quality is like quieter and it's more like, um, you know, like uh, I'm, a, I'm just a part of something here. I'm just a part of something bigger than me. And maybe that there's a sense of like receding back in into something more collective. And that could be shyness. But I think it becomes a stereotype when we don't we don't recognize that, you know, for some people, um, you know, that that being a part of something is not necessarily the same as being shy, like being a part of some kind of fabric socially or culturally or something like that which they could be like really strongly identified with maybe like more of a group identification or something maybe it decreases the sense of being a standout individual or like super extroverted but i don't think it necessarily means that a person would be shy it's yeah it's the difference between being a nucleus and being sort of a satellite yeah that's a, yeah Right. And being in a, like a support role almost rather than wanting to take center stage. I mean, what is the core underlying shyness just as a, as a concept in general? It, it would be a fear of like an almost a, an emotional fear of putting oneself out there as opposed to, let's say, more of a Leo type thing of really wanting to sort of like thrust oneself into the center stage in the middle of a, of a crowd. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of defining. I feel like there's a there's um yeah, there's always there's a sense of like how am I different from a collective or a group and then there's the the need to like have groups that we identify with. Similar in similar sense, I've never liked in yoga for example that a lot of sometimes yoga teachings will go along the lines of you're not your body, you're not any kind of category that you become identified with in this lifetime. You know, you're this eternal spirit soul. Don't get attached to blah, blah, blah. And I'm always like, yeah, I mean, I could see the, the benefit or utility of not getting so overly identified with any aspect of our personhood that we, you know, um, are like riding a roller coaster all the time. Um, but at the same time, um, I think that, that, you know, we are, we also are all of the things that with it make us up from the kind of family we grew up into the wounds that we've experienced the things that make us unique and um and so there's some way in which you know we're we're utterly totally unique infinitely individual but then there's this other sense in which we're we're always going to be identified as as what we're a part of um and i i i feel like that's kind of also the the sun moon dynamic at play yeah and i also think that maybe some shyness um like the what can be seen as shyness might just be like the tendency to want to sort of sense your environment, you know, and just kind of, just kind of, you know, like read the room as people say. And so like, you're not kind of going into a new situation, like immediately trying to like make an entrance. You're going in and just kind of like, all right, like what's the vibe over here? Who seems cool to talk to over there? Um, you know, like, does this person seem like they want to talk to me? Okay. Like well, maybe we maybe we have something in common. We can kind of get along. Right. And maybe once that's established, then cancer is able to like, you know, fully come out or fully show itself um, once the sort of boundaries or maybe even in private, perhaps 
um, you know, in a circle of friends, like any pretense of shyness is dropped because the sort of vibe of the crowd in the room and the feeling of of comfort uh, is there, so it can have more confidence to be itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I'm thinking of my, you know, my my wife and I in, my, in our dynamic. Like she's got a bunch of planets in Aries, right? And um, she's Cancer rising. But if we're in situations that require a lot of like care and nuanced feeling out of things, she'll always look at me like you handle this one. <laughs> and if there's ever a situation where it's like, oh man, I am overwhelmed and something needs to be get done quickly, and it, you know, and I'll just be like, okay, you've got this one, because she'll just go in and like. She doesn't care what they're thinking or feeling or what she'll just like say stuff or do stuff. And I'm always like, oh, my God, you just did. I would be so scared to do that, you know. And so so we're always like looking at each other, trying to figure out like, OK, you got this one. I got this one. I like that. That's a good connection between cancer and Aries. Uh, and because Aries, that was one of the th- keywords that we came up with that, that I thought was so good in that episode was speed and quickness because those are just like such core things to to mars and, and to aries as a cardinal sign um so that's really interesting that you bring that up yeah and i guess the sun is exalted in aries too so it gives a little bit of a sun moon distinction as well maybe mm. yeah right um all right so other keywords that came up on twitter and i'll just run these by you to see what you both think are humbleness generous understanding kind-hearted compassionate and concern how do you feel about those keywords or does that spark any any thoughts in you about the overarching archetype i think most of those oh go ahead ahead. sorry in aries uh and because aries that was one of the keywords that we came up with that that i thought was so good in that episode was speed and quickness because those are just like such core things to to mars and, and to aries as a cardinal sign um, so that's really interesting that you bring that up. Yeah. And I guess the sun is exalted in Aries too. So it gives a little bit of a sun moon distinction as well, maybe. Mm. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So other keywords that came up on Twitter, and I'll just run these by you to see what you both think are humbleness, generous, understanding, kind hearted, compassionate, and concern. How do you feel about those keywords or does that spark any any thoughts in you about the overarching archetype? I think Generous most of those stuff. oh sorry, go, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I think most of those track. I'm not sure if I necessarily see where the humility part is coming from. Um yeah, I mm-hmm. guess I could entertain that, but yeah, I guess again it just goes back to that thing of maybe in contrast with leo um, right right where if leo is like often considered to be like i don't know the least humble sign in some ways or the tendency to center oneself the most um if the contrast with that is like centering somebody else or, or acting as a support or sort of satellite to something else then that could be conceptualized as a sort of variety of humbleness in some way there's such an interesting dynamic around generosity in Leo and Cancer. Like, because both signs, I think, could be fairly described as generous. Definitely. And, um, like, sometimes I think that there's like a covert selfishness with the generosity that could be there in both signs. Like, I, at least I recognize that in, in, you know, like myself as a Cancer. I'm like, 
Yeah, you know, sometimes I'm generous, but it's because I'm hoping for something in return. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cancer wants to feel needed and Leo wants to feel appreciated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Needed. So needed, what does that mean? Or or what are some related keywords for that of cancer or or where that comes from to feel needed? I guess that kind of goes back to like what some people might consider like a nurturing or a mothering instinct, right? You know, and I don't I think that sometimes like, you know, people kind of focus overly on like the maternal qualities of cancer and like, you know, not everyone has that instinct necessarily, but I think that um the lunar archetype is kind of just responsive to what it senses people need and like it wants to kind of provide, you know, what um you know, I'm just thinking about people who um, like just do, you know, kind of like sense that like, oh, like maybe like I'm at work and I can sense that like my team needs me to do this and I'm just going to do it. And I, I like, it's this kind of tendency to like be supportive, um, and to, to provide, you know, what the, what people need. Yeah. To, to give sustenance to something maybe as yeah. part of the like overarching thing. And they're, there can be kind of a similarity between um, Cancer and Virgo, which is the next nocturnal yeah. sign after Leo, where Virgos can also be like really helpful, especially in terms of um, you know doing like day to day things or mechanical things that they feel like or playing some sort of support role for another person. Um, and we see something similar here with a lot of the nourishing and giving sustenance keywords for Cancer. Yeah, I think of like hexagram number 48 in the I Ching. This was coming to mind as as you guys were just talking in it. And that hexagram is called the well. If you don't, if you guys people don't know what the I Ching is, it's like an ancient um uh one of the ancient Chinese classics. Um it's like a philosophical text and uh later was also used in um kind of a as a almost like oracular romantic device. Anyway, um it's comprised of these different hexagrams that are that are six lined figures of yin and yang lines interacting that create all these different like archetypal stages of life and the 48th hexagram called the well says basically the village can't do without the well like everything in the village has to be centered around the, the well this common thing that everyone needs you know water and i feel like the thing about cancerians is that you you're you know, at least I recognize this in myself and so forth, is that we know it's like you're constantly trying to place yourself in a position such that you people couldn't do without you. You know, like you're you're vital somehow to the village, to the family, to the clan, to the community. To it, it goes back to that sense of being a part of an ecology. And sometimes the generosity is truly because there's something well-like about what cancers provide and it's an overflowing sense of something that everyone needs. And I think other times it's about making sure that you, you know, it's like, well, if that's the role I play, then I have to make sure I'm always in a, in a central position so that the village can't exist without me. I'm the, I'm the well, or you kind of can, I, I can notice myself taking that on sometimes. Yeah, I love that because of the the life giving quality and necessity of water in order to give and support life, and how you know in ancient times you did have cities that would need to have like a well for drinkable water, or how you had some like great civilizations that grew up around these major rivers, like the the Tigris and the Euphrates in Mesopotamia, or um, in India the Indus Valley civilization and other major civilizations that sort of came up in different parts of the world 
that tended to focus on rivers because of the the need of water for sustenance and just growing crops and life and everything else. There's something about water that's humble in the sense that water's always running downhill toward like a reservoir. Like I was just hmm. thinking about the well and humility and maybe there's some association there somehow with the fact that water sort of runs down to the lowest point and sort of gathers somehow. Right. Um, and yet still conforms to, cause it's like on the Aristotelian or sort of platonic notion of, you know, fire rises up to the top air rises up as well, but it settles just below fire. Then you have earth that falls down to the, the lowest part of the cosmos to the center of the cosmos and Aristotelian cosmology. And then you have water that's like settles right on top of, and, um, takes the shape of, of earth right on top of it. Right. So there's your, your adaptability or your humbleness in some ways as well, in terms of just um, taking on the shape of, of something else rather than imposing its own form or its own shape on something else. Right. That seems to go into the third house association with like, I'm trying to remember what I remember taking Demetra's uh, class on the th third house, you know, a couple of years ago, I think it was at this point, and her talking about how the third house would be associated with like the queen and um, like the, uh, the the rules that would be customary and and how you treat people almost like the the folk traditions or or rules that would be common for like a city or a village or the way you treat guests who come into your home or something like that. And there's something like very uh, the idea of the water collecting down at the roots and forming with the earth it has this connection to like things that are folky or. Um, and who was it? I think it was even like, I'm trying to think of, it was Joan Baez who had like the sun or moon and cancer in the third house, I think it was, or I might be messing that up, but it, she has a third house sun or moon. And mm -hmm. she was, she was at the, um, she's often attributed with being one of the um, pivotal figures at the folk roots revival music or folk, folk roots revival. I think it was called, it was like a, you know, folk music revival that she was part of. Mm, okay. Um, so let's see other keywords, just going back to my whole Twitter list. Um, we've talked about a lot of the positive ones and like one of the ones I always want to keep it, uh, balanced without like trashing any one sign, but I'm looking for some of the more challenging, uh, keywords that people submitted. And one of them that they mentioned was, was avoidant, um, defensive, and um, sometimes clingy was another keyword that people submitted. And I'm not always saying that the keywords from Twitter are like, you know, the best, you know, and final word on the subject of, of astrology and significations, because sometimes the general um, idea, ideas that people have floating around of certain signs are not very good in pop astrology. But um, how do you feel about those three? Or does that like raise any thoughts in you uh yeah i mean i think like you know i think this might be most true for the cancer rising experience but just thinking about like you know how you know derivative houses work and like the sign relationships um cancer rising has saturn ruling the seventh and the eighth house and so my mm. kind of my take on that is it's sort of like till death to us part <laughs> you know it's like you kind of take the loyalty to an extreme and so like, it's these kinds of like forever bonds, you know? Um, 
And so I think that could be interpreted as being kind of clingy because, you know, I think, I don't know, it depends. Cause I think on one hand, cancers do take their intimate relationships very seriously and they kind of want to maintain them over time. Um, there's also something that I've personally observed with, um, cancer energy, I guess, um, where I think when a cancer is done with someone, like they're really done, you know, like I've heard that kind of referred to as like a door slam. Mm. Mm. So the emotions can be really intense if they're like in the relationship, but then if that shifts, then, um, that can go really intensely in the opposite direction as well. Yeah. Like the wall goes up, right? The shell. And so I think that's kind of what, you know, I think the other keyword was, which, what, what was it again? Uh, let's see, avoidant and defensive. And I think clingy were the three that I just said. Yeah. It's like, I guess like, it's like, are you, are you on in the inner circle or the outer circle? Like that's going to kind of define your experience with, I guess, cancer. Right. And, and it may be hard, if not impossible to like get back in the inner circle if you've been shut out. Possibly. There's some, yeah. There's something sort of like, um, you know, if you think almost about the sublunary sphere in the in the sort of platonic sense like the the allegory of the cave and the the prisoner being um sort of enamored by the shadows on the wall and then let's say you know this this prisoner in the platonic allegory of the cave gets out of their bonds and leaves the cave and sees the light of the eternal forms and so forth it goes back in the cave and he's trying to get the you know tell the other people hey there's this there did you know that there's this place outside of the cave and um you know, Plato says that the, the you have to be the prisoner has to be careful because uh, the the freed person has to be careful going back into the cave because the prisoners being disturbed um, could could like kill him. Um, you think about like the very Platonic movie like The Matrix, but kind of kind of a similar like almost like Platonic type of movie. And um, so I think there's something about um, just the you know from the ancient philosophical like Platonic sense of being we're attached to bodies, you know, like the spirit soul, if you think about it in that way, uh, is like attached to a body. And, um, we don't like things that disturb our attachments in like in physical sense, like, uh, whether it's your morning routine and something as simple as that, or the bonds you have or whatever, there's something about this world that like it, it, it works and it's enjoyable in some ways because you, uh, you form all these like bonds and attachments, but then there's something inherently, about bondedness itself that that clings like it's something clinging to something else or just like the light of the sun is sort of clinging to the to the moon somehow um there's something about that that level of attachment that's sort of fundamental so it makes sense that the shadow of it would be sort of this inability to let go or this it's trouble with like detaching yeah also maybe like romanticizing the past you know yeah yeah um, that makes sense. A bondedness really would be a core keyword because that's that then ties together several different of our like archetypal trees that were branching off from our overarching archetype. Um, I like that. So bondedness, and then the downside of that could be having an overbondedness when it's when it's too much and trying to hold on too tightly to something when somebody else is like maybe it's like the first date and you're like. <laughs> you know, professing your like undying love for somebody, uh, maybe it's a little bit, a little bit too quick. Yeah. I don't know. I think that a lot of the kind of, um, 
like negative stereotypes of cancer, you can kind of trace that back to like one of the unique things about cancer is that it's the only sign where both malefics um, suffer like a condition of detriment or fall. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that like, you know, cancer as a whole prefers to coddle, you know, like it doesn't want to deal with like things being harsh or unpleasant or tough. Um, like it wants to kind of create like a, a soft environment, but then, you know, you think about how planets and fall can also just be kind of chaotic and unpredictable. And then, you know, planets in detriment have a tendency to kind of d distort themselves to kind of, you know, get by in an, like a un strange environment, I guess. And so you think about Mars and that like ferocity that cancer can sometimes be associated with. Um, and then Saturn and the kind of coldness when cancer has the shell up um, and like that, that sort of boundary, right. can have this a warped quality into it in a way. Um, it's like, yeah. you know, you think about like a cancer when they're, you know, it's like a, like a mother bear protecting its young or a cancer when they crawl inside their shell. It's like, you're kind of getting that like Mars and Saturn doing a weird dance. Yeah. Cancer right. doesn't like if you're, if, if you have, if you think about Mars and it's fall or, you know, depressed in cancer, it's like, well, I, I always think of the example of, um, life includes the severing of the umbilical cord. And I remember cutting with the scissors when both of my kids were born, I got to clip the umbilical cord. And I remember just being like a little scared, you know, like, oh my God, like this, you know? And um, so I just think that, you know, it's like that severing action of Mars that, that naturally severs bonds. Uh, like that's a good, a good visual image of the umbilical cord being cut. Like it's totally natural. It's okay. You know, <laughs> but, but it, it, it's, um, like life involves union and separation, union and separation kind of coming in and out of one another. And I think, you know, for cancers, it, it might, one way of looking at Mars's debility in cancer might be like, it's just, it's hard for a place that's so much about bondedness to deal with like things that sever. That's perfect. I love that. Um, and, and, and also I was thinking with what you were just saying, Steph, that one of the issues with cancer is it's actually an aversion to two of the fire signs. It's an aversion to Leo and it's an aversion also to Sagittarius because it has no aspect, no major aspect with those signs because it shares no affinity with them. And one of the things that fire signs really like is like freedom and freedom of movement. And I think that's one of the issues also when it comes to that is it's not that cancer doesn't like freedom, but once bonds are created, um, that notion of clinginess can sometimes be felt by especially like fire signs that like to be able to go off and like you know talk to and build other bonds with other people and keep things kind of light and not super heavy whereas cancer um, maybe wants to create that bond and then do whatever it takes to maintain it uh, and and have some sort of regularity within yeah, one of my best friends in graduate school was an Aries. And another one of my best friends uh, now is is an Aries, and I'm a Cancer. And I find that I'm always like, oh, I'm so envious of how free you are, you know? And but but by the same uh, on the same note, you know, my two buddies, they both say, I just feel like you just the, the family, the things that because they're both bachelors, they're both like utterly free, you know, free spirited, traveling the world, living abroad. And there's this kind of like, oh, I kind of like and I'm interested in like what you're doing, what your MO is like, you know? And I think this weird, um, like interesting attraction between Aries and Cancer as well that I've noticed in some of my 
close friendships. Yeah, I love that because um, that can be really hard to then because they just don't have like a similar mo in terms of how they they would approach things in that way. Um, and that's interesting though that on each side there can be almost like a, because it's so foreign from what you gravitate towards almost like a, an exoticness to that of like, Oh, you know, that would be interesting to experience because it's so different than what my life is like. I think, you know, cancer also has this ability to kind of create a sense of home wherever it goes, you know? So even if it's not the kind of traditional expression of like having firm roots and like a hometown that you're like three generations deep in, um, you know, it's like, you think about like someone like Anthony Bourdain, who kind of like, you know, his cancerianness is that he was able to go all over the place and kind of just create intimacy with strangers over a meal. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great one. Yeah, over food. So he did a, a travel show for those that are not familiar, um, did a travel show on like Food Network. And so he had Leo rising and the sun and cancer. And, you know, food is kind of an important like discussion topic for the moon and the connection between cancer and the stomach as well as, as a major component. And that was something that first came up in Taurus, but I feel like we've got a repeating theme there in cancer as well. Mm -hmm. Why is that? It's because, I mean, food is a uh, sustenance. It's, it's a way that you can actually um, support somebody else or support a guest. And it's interesting in a lot of cultures, how people will offer guests like food or, how if you're staying, you know, at somebody else's house, that's one of the things that you have to be provided by someone else. So maybe it's through those themes of like nurturing or supporting and giving sustenance to to another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also kind of like, you know, like this idea of the well, like a central gathering point um, around like a basic survival need. Yeah. And therefore also a common commonality because um, it's something that you can like relate to somebody else through. Um, having a shared experience of of food or eating sitting and eating together or even like liking the same food and finding that you have an affinity uh, for each other through some basic necessity that both of you happen to like. Yeah, definitely. You know, it kind of makes me think about how like, you know, food is kind of such a social experience. Um, you know, it's like, there's so many like, yeah, it's like obviously like something we need to do as, you know, as a physical need, but then there's so much culture and tradition and just kind of custom that's built around that. And, um, you know, one of the ways that like, one of the easiest ways for someone to like appreciate another culture that they're not familiar with is to enjoy its food. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Um, are there any other major, um, instances or people with cancer placements or like famous celebrity charts that either of you can think of that are examples that come to mind when you think of uh cancer um i had a uh, pablo neruda he is a mega cancer actually he has six planets there his chart mm -hmm. is actually super interesting i don't know if you have the the link on in there or it's saved in your database yeah let me see if i can find it uh but go ahead and go ahead and explain and I'll see, or describe the chart for the audio listeners and I'll see if I can find it. Um, yeah. So Pablo Neruda, um, I believe he had a Pisces rising and just like a huge cancer stellium in the fifth house. And, you know, he is most famous for being a poet um, and the quality of his poems, you know, like he had, you know, other things like he was kind of involved in politics and communism at one point, but um, he kind of, you know, like his legacy was really just in that, um, 
the poetry and like specifically love poetry. You know, I guess it's like the fifth house quality. Like um, some of those poems were erotic in nature. Um, they also had like this like element of surrealism to them. Again, kind of going back to like the association with um, images and dreams. Um, but, you know, like a lot of his poems contained, you know, it was like he was drawing on these memories of his love affairs and memories of his homeland. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I found like something he said one time, um, Neruda said that it was through metaphor, not rational analysis and argument that the mysteries of the world could be revealed. That's interesting. That that would tie in very nicely to, to Hemingway as, as well. Um, often cited in relation to that idea that the, you know, the beauty of the iceberg is that so much of it lies beneath the surface submerged. And a lot of his prose, um, you know, his stories were like very common, like, like a lot of his stories were about simple themes. Like you think of the old man in the sea or, and lots of others too, but, um, you know, so much of his prose were like very simple and simple short sentences but there's so there's so much there um as well that that was suggestive or that you you read his prose and it doesn't like you're reading short simple sentences but it doesn't feel like it, it evokes a lot and i think there's something very lunar about that as well so here is that first chart that you were just talking about a minute ago stuff of pablo neruda so he has Pisces rising and the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Neptune all in Cancer in the fifth whole sign house. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive as far as Cancer stelliums go. Yeah, I feel like he's like a mega Cancer. Right. Um, yeah, I can't think of any. I don't think I have any bigger st Cancer stelliums than that in my database at this point. Um, and then. You just mentioned Hemingway, and here's Hemingway's chart, which was Virgo rising and the sun and Venus in Cancer in the 11th whole sign house. Interesting. He also has the moon in Capricorn. Yeah. So is it a full moon, full moon chart, or just before a full moon? Are there any other example charts that either of you wanted to share? Yeah, there was um, actually just like a couple um, musicians that I thought like were interesting examples of how um, you know, like a Mercury Mars conjunction in Cancer can show up in like very different genres. So, uh, Lana, Lana Del Rey, um, she has Sun and Cancer and Mercury and Mars. Um, and I think that she's kind of an interesting, um, interesting representative of the archetype, you know, like a lot of her, her music is just very wistful and fragile. Um, like it, it has this kind of like vulnerability and like lovelorn quality to it. Um, but then, you know, as, as the sun in cancer, like with the sun ruling her midheaven, um, part of her like brand, I guess, as a musician is like this visual identification with like old Hollywood and Americana, which I think is kind of interesting because, you know, the U.S. is a cancer sun, too. Um, also, one yeah, of her. We're most actually rec recording this on July 4th on. Um, it's true. Yeah. On the, on the birthday of, of the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that and, um, you know, one of her most famous songs is called Summertime Sadness, which like, you know, what is cancer Super season, <laughs> but summertime sadness. Um, and then the other example I had was um, Kendrick Lamar, who I think is most 
often thought of as like the Gemini because he has a son in Gemini. Um, because he has Mercury, Mars, and his midheaven in Cancer. And I think like it's just kind of interesting because there's this sort of rhythmic cadence to the way that he raps. Um, you know, like there's this kind of like it's almost like staccato in like a buttery texture. Like it's it's sharp, but it's flowy. And then also like his his lyrics are very raw and kind of emotionally affecting. So, you know, it feels a little bit like um, confessional poetry. Like it's um, again, it's like that, like interiority. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, with the Mercury Mars conjunction, it feels a little provocative, too. So, yeah, Kendrick has Libra rising with Mercury Mars and the Midheaven all in Cancer in the 10th whole sign house. Um, yeah, and I like that connection also because uh, he also has the Gemini placements and the interchange between uh, those two with the Sun and Venus and Gemini. Um, and just being basically like one of the most brilliant lyricists of uh, his generation, at least usually regarded as. All right. Um, so, and you said you had one other point to make about um, Anthony Bourdain as well. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think he's one of my favorite cancers. But like you know, like I I think the obvious kind of association is like yeah, he's like you know someone who's like a basically like a food travel um, personality. Um, but I think that his cancerianness really comes through in just like you know how a lot of his show like. Like the way that the camera lens was focused, it was almost like kind of like from like the way that he was looking, like it was like it had this kind of subjective quality. And um, I think what really kind of comes through is um, his care and his respect for the humanity of his subjects. Um, and so he was someone who like, I think, like, you know, really stood out because he wasn't afraid to show genuine emotion on camera. And somehow like it never felt gimmicky or scripted when he did it because like, you know how some people try to do that and it's like oh look at what a good person i am um but i think that there was something like very authentic about that and authenticity i think is a good word for cancer um because that was also something that was how he initially got famous is through his book um kitchen confidential where it was like he wrote a book talking about sort of the the secret life of professional chefs and sort of like letting you into that world or letting you in on a secret in some sense and in that way you know just sort of told it how it was and was much more authentic about things um almost to the point of being blunt but there was something that was really appealing about his authenticity in that way yeah yeah um so you mentioned uh like Lana Del Rey's song "Summertime Sadness," and I don't know if we got into the sadness part as a keyword. I know we've talked about like emotions and like sentimentality and things like that, um, but but sadness might be an important keyword for cancer in being tied into some of those emotional keywords as a potential, you know, a downside but also a positive side at the same time of the archetype. Yeah, I think of speaking of charts. I'm, what comes to my mind is um, Robin Williams, and um, you know, obviously it's sort of tragic the way you know that he that he passed, and and dealing with depression throughout his life. Um, <clears throat> I 
I one time uh, had had a friend who worked with him. It was uh, someone who did like hair and makeup and worked in Hollywood and stuff like that and got to do like his hair and makeup on a set one time. And he said that he was one of the most empathetic human beings that he'd ever met in even just hanging out with him for like an hour, getting him ready for the camera. And um, uh, when I think of like the different roles he's played, whether it's like Patch Adams or uh, what was his name? Professor Keating from Dead Poet Society. I think that was his name. There's this quality in him that like, um, it's like a sad, sweet quality that, that there's like this tender, empathetic. Um, and I think sometimes there's a, it's not just sad, like sad is a good word, but I think it's almost like um, your sadness is safe with me or your, your sadness is appreciated or your sadness is welcome here. And um, so there's almost like a, um, a, a, a reservoir in, in for other people's emotions that cancer is like, like very welcoming in that respect. And I think sometimes that might get confused for the empathy can get confused for sadness. And I think Robin Williams is just a really interesting example of that quality of, of empathy. And I'm always reminded of what my friend said about being with him in the same room, which was like, he was just such an incredibly empathetic person. Yeah, that's a really, so empathy, that's a really important keyword for cancer. And it also kind of connects it with um, the sign Pisces, as I was hearing you talk about that, and also um, looking at Robin Williams' chart, where he had Scorpio rising, and then Mars, Uranus, and the Sun in Cancer in the ninth whole sign house, but he also had a, a Pisces moon um, in the fifth house, and that's kind of similar to, and, and makes me think of, and is is almost like an inversion of the birth chart of Kurt Cobain, um, who had the sun in Pisces and the moon in Cancer. Um, and I know that was something that he really struggled with was his like empathy and sometimes um, feelings of like sadness and stuff and just being overwhelmed by, by that in some ways with having so much water in his chart. That reminds me, um, can you go back to William's chart for just a second? Yeah, the, there it is. Okay, so this is something that I also heard about him through my friend, um, which was um, that you see that that Mars Uranus conjunction in Cancer, and um, Robin Williams would apparently get so um, emotionally worked up both before he went on stage and during and after that he would sweat like uncontrollably, like there was just this like uncontrollable release of water from his body. And you can actually see it in some of the original stand-up that he did, like on stage, you'll notice like the just profuse amount of sweating. And my friend who's into astrology as well was like, I just couldn't help but notice, you know, the Mars-Uranus conjunction in his chart in, a wa in cancer. And he was not only empathetic, but he was so such a live wire on stage and relating to the emotions of the audience and stuff that he would like sweat uncontrollably. And I thought that is such a perfect Mars-Uranus and cancer signature in his chart. Mm. yeah i guess yeah. it kind of just makes you think about like why why do cancers mm -hmm. need to be so guarded in the first place like what what is like the thing that like what is the origin point of the need to have you know energetic boundaries or like a self-protective force field it's that sensitivity it's like the that kind of like you know porousness where you're always kind of just like awash in this 
you know, sea of like energetic content or just feelings and memories from other people that can, you know, sometimes deplete you or bring you down. And I think, you know, yeah, all water signs are kind of like that and they have different ways of coping with it. You know, I think that with Pisces, they might just kind of like dissociate when things get to be overwhelming. Right. Or have a tendency towards like escapism or, or other things like that. Mm-hmm. There's also um, this, oh, go ahead, Chris. It's just, it's making me think of, um, again, back to Kurt Cobain's chart and just like what he said in his, his suicide note, um, where he actually talked about that and he talked about just overwhelming emotions and things like that. Um, so he said, uh, at one point, I mean, he refers to himself like famously as a sad little Pisces, um, but there was there's some other point in it where he just talks about how he feels too sad and he says that um he says he can't get over the frustration the guilt and the empathy that i have for everyone he says there's good in all of us and i think i simply love people too much so that makes me feel too fucking sad the sad little sensitive unappreciative pisces Jesus, man, why don't you just enjoy it? He says, I don't know. Um, and so just the some of the ways that he expresses that obviously is coming through the Pisces placement, but it's just like doubled up by the cancer placement of his moon at the same time. Oh, Chris, uh, pull up that note one more time. I want to show you one thing that was right below where you just were. Um, I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy. Right. And she's what cancer sun, isn't she? Yeah. Sun and moon. Courtney love has the sun and moon and cancer in the 10th house. I believe. I think it's interesting that the sweating of empathy is, is mentioned after what I was just saying about Robin Williams yeah. and that, you know, his wife is uh, sun, sun, moon cancer as well. It's just really struck me. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that that's one of the qualities that he exalts about his wife is that she has so much empathy. And then when he goes on in the same paragraph to talk about his daughter, he says, and I have a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm. And that terrifies me to the point to where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker that I've become. So it's like he sees the qualities of himself and having that openness and empathy, that watery quality um, in his daughter at such a young age, but he worries for her and, and he fears for her because he knows that that openness sometimes is going to get her into trouble or there will be people that take advantage of that or um, you know don't return it in a, in a positive way. And that's something that he sort of worries about on some very core level. The yeah. end, it's... It, he said there, thank you from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach. I thought that was an interesting, very Cancerian line as well. Yeah. And then just thinking about like the nature of his cancer planets, like, you know, he has the moon and Jupiter there, which are, you know, both very dignified. But then, um, you know, I think, I think that combination like expresses mm -hmm. itself as just this kind of like abundance of care for like every single thing and every single sorrow that's going on in the world. And a lot of people just kind of tap out at like, well, you know, there's all this stuff going on and it's just like, I can't bring myself to care about every single little thing and every single little, you know, um, you know, like a lot of people just sort of like can only focus on a couple things at a time. But then I think with moon and Jupiter and cancer, it's like, 
there's enough care to go around. And also that can be very subjectively different, difficult for the person who is always kind of like, you know, tapping into that limitless well. Right. Cause there's both a care in the sort of like local community or local family unit of cancer, but then also with Pisces of the more like on the more collective or like universal level as well. There's the Venus, the exalted Venus conjoined Saturn feels very Shakespearean too. Um, both in terms of describing some of the nature of his relationship with Courtney Love. And also I think some of that sense of like, I care about people too much. And then there's another part in that letter where he says he, he doesn't like human beings. And I, I just feel like the extreme of loving everyone, but also um, there's this kind of shake like Shakespeare. Like I think of when I think of people with like Venus Saturn combinations in their chart, I sometimes think of that Shakespearean quality in love, but I also think of sometimes people have very finely tuned sense of what they both like, but also what they reject will be really strong. Like, I don't like that. That's not beautiful or something. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that Venus Saturn strikes me as like a part of what we're talking about right now too, anyway. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and here's Courtney Love's birth chart, his wife who had has the sun at 17 cancer and the moon at 23 cancer in the 10th house. So, um, yeah, so that means, you know, they, he had his moon in cancer on her sun or near her sun as well as her moon. And so that was part of the sinistry connection that they shared and probably part of the connection between the two of them and him identifying that, that sense of empathy as being a shared quality between them. It's funny that, you know, you mention um, the till death do us part thing stuff where you were talking about cancer risings. And I think it was like you said, the seventh and eighth being ruled by Saturn and so forth. Um, I think it's interesting there. I'm just, you know, I'm not saying I believe this, but there was someone at my gym the other day who was like adamant, absolutely adamant that Courtney Love killed C Kurt Cobain. Don't you know? Like, and I was, you know, so there's these conspiracy people, you know, there's people who like little still really, really believe that she killed him. Like, you know, and I thought, well, you know, it's like, as we were talking, I thought, regardless of if that's true or not, it plays into the whole Cancerian dynamic of, uh, you know, the marriage, which was at, at times really complicated by drug addiction, you know, clinging and a attachment. And, and then even if, even if, you know, she had nothing to do with that, and that's a horrible thing to even think, Nonetheless, people have somehow projected that on to her, perhaps, and it's, it seems sort of fitting somehow for a sun, moon, and cancer that you would be. And, it, and if and there's com comparable, which and this is again, like I'm not saying I'm not a believer in that particular conspiracy theory. I don't really even know what it consists of, but it's interesting that O.J. Simpson, who's also uh, has a, of course, his whole life story is embedded in the death of his wife and the being charged for the murder of his wife and. Uh, in it's uh he's quitted in the criminal trial but convicted in a civil trial if i remember i don't remember exactly there was one that he was that he didn't get any um that he sort of got got off and then there was another one where he was charged I don't, or, or he was guilty and i don't remember which one was which but um but either way it's interesting that in a in he you know he is a cancerian chart as well and then you're looking at that some similar themes in terms of like someone who is really possessive um, I remember I watched the OJ made in America documentary that came out some years ago and it was like, you know, just this description of someone who was intensely possessive of their spouse. 
So whether that's true of Courtney or not, it's interesting that, you know, drug addiction and clinging and some elements of codependency were really reported um, in Kurt Cobain's documentary that I watched called The Montage of Heck. And that was like that documentary talked a lot about some of the issues around codependency in that relationship with with drugs. So there's some interesting parallels there is all I'm, all I'm trying to say, I guess, without sounding like too much of a jerk. Yeah, it's really tricky um, because of that that tendency sometimes for Pisces to have a tendency towards escapism. And sometimes that can be through, you know, things like drug or alcohol or other sometimes more, you know, um, constructive things like even like movies or music or something like that. Um, but but having that tendency to want to be able to escape to another realm or to another world in some sense and be taken away from the immediacy of of the overwhelming sense of, of feelings and empathy and everything else in the material world. Um, cancer has that to some extent as well, but I'm not sure what what is cancer's form of escapism if cancer was to want to like escape from things by is it similar to Taurus? Like sometimes like the things that make you feel good, like physically, like eating your favorite food or something like that? Yeah, I think it's withdrawing and kind of like staying inside your home and staying inside, you know, <laughs> watching TV, not going out, canceling your plans. Yeah. Right. That sounds so very familiar. Maybe, maybe it's the friend that needs to be like dragged out of their house um, by their more like extroverted friends because otherwise they're maybe their default tendency might to be have like a quiet night in. Cling to yeah. the familiar. Hmm. Listen to a sad song on repeat. Right. All right. Um, so what are, are there any other um, example charts that we meant to go through or, or share in this section? The only other one I was going to mention was Tom Hanks, but I, there's not much to say that we haven't already said like sort of thematically about him other than like I think one of the interesting things about I've always found this an interesting parallel is that he Here's a cancer. He's a cancer son, I believe. I'm trying to remember. It's a cancer son, I think. Yeah, yeah. sun and Mercury and Cancer in the eleventh whole sign house. <clears throat> so cancer son, and he. One of the things that Cancerian men deal with, I think, this just my own reflections and in my clientele, um, is, you know, like the movie Big. He plays a little boy in a grown man's body. <laughs> and, and like there's you, you guys have seen that movie i'm sure you have it's classic so you know to me that's like a, such a quintessential cancer son he plays a lot of things a lot of things in his career that reflect his cancer son like um castaway is it castaway i think that was what it was yeah. called and um uh you know polar express you know he's like santa claus and there's a, so there's a lot of like very childlike uh elements um but i think one of the things that I, I think is also really interesting is just, you know, the way that like I was joking, I had a couple of friends a while ago and we were like, we need to start like a, a cancer son's uh, dad's club or something like this kind of because it, there's a there's a feeling that I I feel in many ways very childlike, even though I'm a grown man, you know, um, and I think that dichotomy of like the child and the adult, regardless of like gender or sex distinctions, just the child and the adult dichotomy. Um, if you want to look at the movie big in that way too, is really interesting. It's as though there's something that's sort of eternally childlike within Cancerians, even as they become adults. Um, and so I, I just, I, thought I am that'd baby. Be, yeah, <laughs> there you go. that's worth yeah. mentioning, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's like an earnestness, and that's really important. And even in, you know, I think his most famous role was like Forrest Gump. You know, that's kind of one of the recurring themes is just his earnestness or or almost like childlike demeanor in encountering all these experiences through history as part of the the charm of it in some sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's this weird, a lot of my, like, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of my, um, childhood remains like really, really, you know, I went to school, I did an MFA in creative writing and I, what I, I wrote my book about were mostly childhood memories. And I feel like there's something about childhood that remains important for almost every Cancerian I know, no matter how old they are. Mm. Maybe it has to do with just the importance, like impressionability of childhood and how you know, they say that within what is it, the first like seven years or something that most of the childhood experiences you have will like imprint on you major um, things in terms of your personality and how you'll later grow and develop the rest of your life. You know, that makes me think of Chris is the the teaching of the important lunar days after um, birth, uh, you know, that, that there's this doctrine that you would look at, um, you know, what was happening on, I'm trying to remember the, the basically the, like the, if you think of the progressed lunar cycle, you're following how the first or maybe first one or two moon cycles after your birth play out as a symbolic progression of your life or that you might like at the pre prenatal lunation, or that you might look at I'm trying to remember what days it was. It was like seven, 11 and 40, or I, I'm trying, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's the third, seventh and 40th day of the moon. I think that's that, that that's what it is. Yeah. That seems like exactly what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. So just in terms of that, and then those memories sort of stay with you and stay residual, um, even into later years and, and, and the important role that that plays in, in, um, informing your personality, um, which kind of makes me think of the whole, the debate between, you know, how much do our personalities come in fully formed versus how much of it is, uh, conditioned by early childhood experiences and conditioning, um, you know, how much do we have a blank slate versus how much is there already? And clearly, you know, some of those early childhood experiences like do make a major difference and can alter a person's trajectory for better or worse. Yeah. And that I, brings back up the idea of writing, right? Almost like a blank slate that you're inscribing something on or that something has already been inscribed upon or something like that. Sorry to interrupt Steph. Oh, no, I was just going to say when I was in high school and I was kind of like, having like, you know, going through like teen angst, teen depression, I had like a phase where I wanted to like find my old childhood friends. And like, you know, this was before Facebook existed. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. like, I, I like, you know, tried to like reconnect with all these people that were like important to me in my childhood, because I felt like there was like something in that, that I needed to kind of like reconnect with, like, I guess maybe like the core essence of who I was or, um, yeah, I don't know. Like that's, that's been like something that I've kind of I like, I'm, that's kind of how I am. Like, you know, like I'll, like, I'm, I'm interested in kind of like maintaining those connections. Some people aren't. Facebook. And <laughs> I just had to say that word. <laughs> Facebook, <laughs> everything it was meant to be, everything it became. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. No, like I had to, I had to go through like a phone book to find oh my, gosh, my old yeah. like elementary school friend. <laughs> You're yeah. going to have to explain what a phone book is to our younger listeners. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, like, really dating myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so, so n- nostalgia. So that's really important. Like a nostalgia and a, and a yearning to to connect with um, one's younger self, which sometimes maybe feels like one's authentic self before all sorts of other like life experiences built up on top of it and like colored and and changed things. And maybe the the what was the blank paper of your life and your personality early on got so many different like marks and like scratches and illustrations imprinted on it but thinking back to that that earlier version maybe in in a sort of idealization of the earlier times yeah definitely and also just like you know kind of going back to cancer's remembering everything and it's just like that was one of the things that i think like you know like realizing that like not everyone is having like the same kinds of experiences on the inside and it's just like always being the one to be like, Oh my God, do you remember when like this happened like 20 years ago? And everyone's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you like that too? Well, that just reminded me, you just, uh, remind, this is the way my brain works. So people be saying something, it just triggers some other idea or thought that's related. Um, yeah, Steph, I just was remembering. And I, so I just looked it up while you were talking and Garrison Keillor, who's like very famous for creating this very nostalgic sense of like, um, sort of, Lake Wobegon, you guys know, you guys know Lake Wobegon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's this radio personality. He was on NPR for a long time. Um, and he um, he's from Minnesota. He has Jupiter and Venus in Cancer. Um, and he had this show called The Prairie Home Companion. And um, in part of the slogan of uh, Prairie Home Companion, I'll read it to you guys because you guys won't believe how Cancerian it is. <clears throat> Uh, so anyway, he um, he was a um, radio personality who had this fictional uh, the show about a fictional town called Lake Wobegon. That's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. And it's sort of this funny caricature of uh, kind of like rural Minnesota and how you know there's this sort of these like nostalgic sentimental bonds of how great small town life is. And yet the whole show is about how absurd and ridiculous it is at the same time. Mm. Anyway, I was in a creative writing program uh, and he came as a visiting teacher and I, I was writing um, a memoir at the time and a lot of it contained stories about growing up in a small town in Minnesota. So I asked him, I said, well, what would you recommend when it comes to writing about small town minnesota like what how how should i write it how and he said he said there's this really interesting story about the town i told him i grew up in cambridge minnesota and he ended up telling a story about one of the um the owners of like a a newspaper in that town who was like a you know a, a diehard republican like his whole life but i think it was like his last year of life um right before he died he ended up voting for al gore because he was he was really really concerned with the environment and he felt like Al Gore was a good advocate for you know in in environmentalism to the point where he was willing to kind of um set aside all of his republican values to because he was so he loved the environment more than he loved the republican party and that was sort of this really interesting twist that his story took at the end and so Garrison Keillor said you're in your memories everything remains the same you know, in, in your memories, it's this idyllic thing. But the, the truth is that people and things are always changing. And so your memory always has to take into account the, the fact that nothing remains static. Nothing remains um, as perfect as your memory 
will try to hold it to be. Um, and I always thought that was such a um, really insightful thing that sort of reflected the wisdom of his Venus, Jupiter, and Cancer and the way that he told stories about sort of um, folk life in Minnesota. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, and one of the last things that was mentioned that you were talking about, Steph, reminded me of something that, um, you know, movie production studios over the past decade keep doing remakes because people love the nostalgia from like when they were younger. And so it's like safe for movie studios to like remake an old movie that they know has sold because it plays to people's emotions and, and idealization of the past and like loving something that that's already familiar in some sense. So it's like, so you get all of these like rebooted movies or soft reboots and, and things like that. Top Gun. That was one yeah. of the most successful movies, I think, in like recent history or maybe uh, set records or something. And it's uh, it was total reboot of, uh, you know, a beloved movie or like Stranger Things, which is all like it's so, so much 80s nostalgia in that Netflix series. Right. Yeah. Top Gun has gotten over like a billion dollars already. It's only been out for what, like a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's there, there's something really important there as well about you know, that which is familiar and that just feeling feeling good to people by default as a default and that um, being something that's super important to cancer, maybe the familiar being more important to cancer almost than any other sign. Summer blockbusters are like that too, aren't they? Like they kind of play on familiar. Like I feel like summer blockbusters are always sort of like, they're not like Oscar winning films that like, do something radically different or experimental. Like I feel like summer blockbusters sort of play on your emotions. Like, mm, right? Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Um, so yeah, so that that that's really crucial in terms of the centering of that. Taurus has something similar, except it's just like as a fixed Earth sign. It's just the repetition of what feels good. Uh, being a thing that Taurus does of like finding that thing that it likes and then just really leaning into it and doing it over and over again to the point where like other signs might get bored with that thing. But Taurus actually finds joy in that, in the familiar and in the repetition of it. Um, there's something like that with cancer, except it's the joy in that which is familiar. Kind of makes me think about how like when you listen to a familiar song, doesn't your doesn't it like activate more dopamine or something? I could be wrong. It's like your brain mm -hmm. has kind of like a neurochemical response to something it recognizes. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, like I know how this song goes. Like that makes sense. My every time we get in the car, you know, my daughter will ask for the exact same Miley Cyrus song to, you know, so maybe there's <laughs> something to that. Right. I like that because that's a, again a connection between with Taurus. It's like the liking of something that's from like a physical sensation, like like smell or or taste or something like that. But with listening to a song, there's a little bit of that since there's a sense of hearing. But it's also sometimes with music, like also an appealing to an emotion or something like a song that reminds you of somebody or a song that reminds you of some situation from the past or what have you. Yeah. You're setting a vibe. Yeah. All right. Well, um, so we've been talking for about two hours, so that's pretty good. We've gone through most of the base, basic significations that I wanted to go through or a lot of the ones that I got from Twitter. 
Um, are there any major areas or things that we haven't touched on, but like should have that we're going to kick ourselves if we don't mention before the end of this? I think there's one interesting thing that could be mentioned about Saturn in Cancer. I feel like we kind of touched on Mars in Cancer, not as much on on Saturn in Cancer, aside from the like Capricorn Cancer distinction. But I have a client who's allowed me to use their chart in like teaching demos and stuff like that, who was born with um, Saturn um, in Cancer, like in the tenth house. And I thought it was interesting that the first time I talked to them, they they described inheriting um, a family business that they felt obligated to run and take care of, even though it wasn't really what they wanted to do. And so I thought it's one thing that I've seen in my practice over and over is like a similar pattern with Saturn and cancer of like being like emotionally bound up or obligated to things like a sense of emotional responsibility for things that sometimes feels really heavy or weighty. That seems to be part maybe of why Saturn is kind of more difficult in cancer. Um, like I've had a lot of single moms, for example, who really like, oh my gosh, I'm struggling to make ends meet or, you know, father isn't paying maybe child support or something. And it's like, oh, Saturn and cancer in the eighth house or something like that. So that was just something that I, I thought of that might be interesting to talk about. It also kind of reminds me of how like no one in the world will guilt trip you better than your own mom. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right, right. Also, I feel like um, there's kind of a missed opportunity when we mentioned the theme of Monday with cancer rising about, um, have you heard of that, that weird trend where, where like organisms keep evolving back into crabs? What? There's this thing, I swear to God. Um, I don't know what the official name for it is. I think it's like carcinogation or something or something like that. <laughs> Carcination. Um, where like, they keep finding that like organisms just like evolve back into crab like forms. <laughs> and I think that's been like, a joke that like, or like an association people have made on Twitter before about how like, you know, cancer rising theme of Monday, all life, <laughs> all life forms revert to crab. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if there's any connection etymologically with the word incarceration and, and, and cancer or that root, the root word of cancer. Um, one of the last things I would to mention was mentioned briefly, but since we're, we're recording this on um, Independence Day on July 4th, 2022, that the United States has uh, a cancer sun in the Declaration of Independence chart. And it makes me think of some of the, you know, interesting themes that come up just with the country. And it's a little hard to like stand outside of the country that we live in, but to whatever extent that that's appropriate, where you have these debates about recently, for example, with like the Supreme Court of like, you know, what does the Constitution say or what did the founding fathers intend? And this kind of like idealization of the past and of like the people that created the country and and on the part of some people to like stick with that or or go back to that or stay with the past in some sense and this this tension between past and and future that's like a recurring theme in the country. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of like Hatfields versus McCoy's uh, vibe in our country, um, and I think a lot of that probably relates back to the Cancerian at least the shadow tendency towards clannishness and like mm. my, my clan as opposed to your clan, whether it's like a sports team, that's a part of, you know, like, I don't know. I grew up in, in small town Midwest, our, the local high school sports team, the entire community would come out to see play 
on a Friday night, which is sounds crazy when I think about it now. That was that was like this huge rallying point and. But I think it's kind of a microcosm for what I've come to see about our country in general, which is that people love to have these really intense emotional loyalties to things. And um, sometimes we'll even remain irrationally committed to them, even when there's not, it's maybe even against their own interest. Um, I don't know. Some of that seems Cancerian to me. Yeah. Let me pull up the uh, US Sibley chart. So here's the U.S. Sibley chart is one of the charts of the U.S. and it has the Sun at 13 Cancer, as well as Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, and maybe possibly the Lot of Fortune in Cancer in the eighth whole sign house. If the Sibley's chart is correct, and there's a lot of debate about that, but at least we know that the Declaration of Independence chart does have a Cancer stellium. Um, so it's interesting about the idealization of the past, but then there's another quality that can come up sometimes when it comes to that which is um there can be another flip side of that coin which is like the excessively sweet or sentimental uh and there's there's a word for that which is like saccharin is that the way you mm. pronounce it i think so like when something is like overly sweet or overly sentimental or is like playing to one's emotions and appeals to the past in a way that's um either going too far or is almost like like playing it up in some sense that's perfectly describes the purposeful humor of prairie home companion that's a, like and he has the venus jupiter and cancer combined garrison keeler did so i feel like he and he but he he that show is like a purposeful way of um uh making fun of minnesota nice you know which is oftentimes this like exaggerated thing exactly like that yeah, right. I think there's definitely like this kind of like maudlin quality to the cancer archetype. What do you mean by that? Or could you expand on that? Um, it's just like almost kind of like, or you like it's it's basically what you said, just like overbearingly sweet and sentimental and just like, you know. Right. And that like some other signs like like Capricorn, for example, uh being the opposite sign could really that could really be off-putting, or they they mm -hmm. could like either feel weird about that or feel um yeah just not not buy into it in some way yeah capricorn is very dry and you know sarcastic i think <laughs> you know right. the, the the character that like really well like perfectly represents the capricorn archetype in relation to the family that i can think of recently is jason bateman's character from the series ozark um Think he is a capricorn sun or he has like a capricorn stellium but um you know just that that sense of like my first thing is responsibility to the family not like emotional in involvement and um in his of course in the show his wife played by oh is it laura linney i can't remember who plays his wife wendy bird anyway she plays his wife and her complaint the whole show is Yes, you're responsible, but you're not here emotionally. And that's like the storyline of the whole show in a lot of ways between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, that's like a Saturn issue, right? It's like, well, what are you complaining about? I was busy working and providing, you know, for the family. I didn't have time to, you know, sit there and talk about your feelings. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, one other, just to do some quick fire comparison with the signs, because sometimes that helps to draw the quality even more. But... Um, cancer, we've talked about 
Cancer versus Aries, but we haven't talked at all about Cancer and Libra, which is the other cardinal sign that we've kind of left out of the discussion. Um, what are like some things that you think of that come to mind when you compare Cancer versus Libra, either in ways that they get along or ways in which they don't necessarily? I think they both might have tendencies around people pleasing um, and mm. around just like, I guess, like this kind of sense of like, you know, kindness or niceness. But, um, you know, with like the lunar, the difference <laughs> between like the moon and Venus, I guess, is that the moon is kind of like responding, you know, to just kind of like a sense of what, you know, the other person is feeling or what the other person might need. Whereas, um, you know, I think Venus in an air sign is kind of like, abiding by a more abstract sense of like the rules of engagement, you know, like the rules of relationality and like, um, like social convention, social etiquette. Yeah. Social etiquette. Yeah. That's really good. And sometimes there can be the airiness of that. There can be a lack of depth to that. Whereas cancer is more actually like emotionally invested in like asking, like, are you okay? Because they might mean it in a genuine sense versus Libra might be asking that, um, in a more social sense, sometimes because that's like what they're supposed to say, let's say, for example. Yeah, I think um, there's sometimes a discomfort in the sign of Libra with making um, choices or judgments or being discerning within a situation um, rooted in one's desires or feelings. Um, whereas Cancer is pretty quick to include those things in its decision making. But on the flip side, I think, you know, I, I'm thinking, for example, I worked when I worked on my book, I worked with an editor who was a Libra and they were really helping me make rational choices about how I was writing the story that I wasn't capable of taking my own emotions out of, you know, so they were helping, you know, like helping me be a little bit more clear like that. But then there were certain key moments where I had to interject and be like, you're being too rational. Like I, this is this, the emotional content is really what matters in this passage. And we had to like constantly negotiate about those two things. So I think there's something about that, that's, um, you know, like the, the exalted quality of Saturn in Libra to a cancer can feel, I think, you know, sort of off putting. Um, but I, I suspect that the Venus moon dynamic is compatible. Like there's a sympathy between Venus and the moon in the relational sensibility that, that works, but then, the Saturn quality um, maybe is part of where the tension exists. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that brings up, I was looking at the Zodiac wheel, the only other sign that we haven't mentioned at all in this episode, especially in terms of its relation to Cancer, is Aquarius, which is one of the other of the four signs that's in aversion to Cancer and shares no major aspectual relationship or affinity with it. And a lot of the overlap there is very similar in that Aquarius is a Saturn-ruled sign traditionally, so there's some overlap in terms of some of those significations compared to Capricorn, but there's you know a couple of other qualities there, um, one of them being that it's a fixed sign and the other that it's an air sign, and there's a kind of um, continuation of a coldness and a rigidity to Saturn or, or to Aquarius that I think um, is one of the things that sets it apart from cancer and, and makes them not get along as well as signs. Yeah. I think, you know, with Aquarius, there's like a detachment, you know, and like almost all of its, it's uh, in almost all of its expressions, whereas the moon is very much like, you know, it's, you know, you mentioned the image of the umbilical cord, you know? 
Yeah, so like a, a dispassionateness in Aquarius versus Cancer is is much more passionate. Yeah, like very earnest, very in it, just like, you know. Right. Whereas there's almost like this this objectivity and this like standing outside, almost like this scientific quality to Aquarius um, versus this um, emotional engagement that Cancer wants to have. <laughs> Yeah, Cancer's going to put the urn of the relative on a stand in the middle of the room and the Libra is going to come in and be like, you know, it doesn't look quite balanced <laughs> in here, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, this is kind of, uh, yeah, it's kind of harshing the vibe in here. Yeah, yeah. doesn't so, fit the decor. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, all right. Well, I think that's pretty good for this episode on on Cancer and 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 as far as we can go in terms of like plumbing the depths of the overarching archetype and then some of the many different significations that come from that. I think we've been able to get to some pretty high level um, places in terms of that archetype tree that go pretty close to trying to describe that overarching concept, which itself is not, by nature of it being an archetype, is not describable in words, but we've been able to get pretty close to that through some of these overarching concepts, I feel like. In Cancerian form, we've circumambulated it. Yeah, we've gone like sideways around it. <laughs> yeah, right. We've walked sideways as the crab does. Um, awesome. Well, thank you both, my two my two crab cancer friends. Thank you. Um, so, what do both of you have coming up, and where can people find out more information? Um, Steph, what's your what's your website, and what do you have going on? Uh, so you can find me at ladykazimi.com, and that's also my handle on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, recently I, I just launched, um, I, on my old website, I used to have like a free birth chart tool and I just put up a new and improved version of that. Um, so you can, you know, it gives you a circle chart. It gives you like just a simplified table chart and then very basic, just planet and sign descriptions. Um, and then, you know, consultations are open, you know, I, I'm booking for August and September at the moment. So that's what I have going on. Nice. Awesome. Um, and what about you? Um, yeah, so you can find me at nightlightastrology.com. That's my website. And then the same for my handle on Instagram and YouTube. Um, you know, I do five, like do daily Monday through Friday kind of planetary tracking and giving people content like that. And then I have readings and classes and stuff that you can find on the website. So yeah, I'd be glad to meet new people. Awesome. And uh, I'll put links to both of your websites in the description below this video on YouTube or on the description page on the astrologypodcast.com website for this episode. Um, yeah. So thanks. To you, thank you both for joining me. Thank you for, having, for having, me. having us. Yeah. All right. And thanks everybody for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Bye. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, and Jake Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, 
access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io. There's also a major astrology conference happening this year that's being hosted by the International Society for Astrological Research. And that's happening August 25th through the 29th, 2022 in Westminster, Colorado. You can find out more information at isar2022.org.